0: We think we've heard of that before. Stranger stories every day. Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring. So, listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.
1: Hello. Hi. So, uh, welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. I'm Scotty Milder.
0: I am Amelia Ampuero, and we are recording during daylight hours, which is a special this treat for us.
1: Never happens.
0: <laughs> no, we're usually recording in the middle of the night. Of
1: course, it is also we're also recording like three days late, so you know let's not.
0: This uh, is true. Pat ourselves but we, on
1: the back too much. Look,
0: we take the W's where we can find them. <laughs> and today, the W is that it is not eleven o'clock at night when we right. start recording. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, anything, anything new to tell people? Oh shoot! I feel like there was something that I was going to be like, "Ooh, we should talk about this on the podcast," and now I'm not remembering what it was. <laughs> I feel like it had something to do with TV or something, but it's not coming.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's gone. I haven't I haven't been watching anything anyway. I just yeah
0: I had time, but I mean, um, we all know that I've been. I've literally watched everything except the wire the only thing i have not watched during the pandemic is the wire much to scotty's chagrin
1: you'll i mean i i mean not even to my chagrin anymore because i've just given up on it
0: it's Uh, just a it's just a a gentle acceptance yeah of the fact that i will never watch that show
1: (laughs) i did just binge season three like all in one night a few nights ago so oh
0: really yeah Fantastic.
1: Uh, I'm back in Wireworld. Also, uh, one thing I did want to, I mean, I guess I might as well mention, is I actually saw that stupid Avatar movie.
0: You saw it?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, I kind of... Uh, like some of this is like you know film professor scotty needs to kind of know what's happening in the world true and i was like there's enough like technological advances in this thing that i really should like see what the fucking thing looks like like what okay. the cameras and stuff are doing and like i mean yeah it's real pretty like it looks okay looks real nice and like okay. You know, James Cameron, like, knows how to tell a story, you know, that, like, in the moment, you're like, ooh, you know, you're all caught up and shit. And then when it's over, you either, like, with the first movie, I just didn't remember a goddamn thing about it probably a week later. And then this one, you're just like, yeah, now when I think back on that, there's, like, lots of uh, not great things in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was all stuff I knew that wouldn't be great, but, like, lots of weird white savior stuff. I will say it's a better, I think it's a better movie than the first one. Okay. Like it's got okay. more interesting stuff in it. But it's like all kind of wrapped around like like a big turd of a um, central idea, so
0: of white saviorism.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's pretty, so, you know, there's something.
0: Okay. Um. I think I think maybe I was, was thinking that we were going to be able to talk about cocaine bear. But oh, that yeah, also did that, not happen. That
1: hasn't happened yet. Um, no. I mean, hopefully, like, we're going to go see that thing soon. Yeah,
0: I know. Cause I'm really excited. I, like, I had, te- I, Scotty and I were texting about it. We, we had made some tentative plans to go see this movie mm-hmm. um, and they fell through. But I was really, like, I had told you via text, I was really thinking that this was along the like Sharknado. Mm hmm realm and then i looked at the imdb and i was like no there's like a bunch of really great actors (laughs) in this movie like what is happening yeah so uh i guess be on the lookout for the weirdest thing review about (laughs) cocaine bear i was was comparing
1: it to um i haven't seen cocaine bear yet obviously but i was comparing it to the movie lake placid Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't know if anyone's seen it. I mean, that's a pretty forgotten movie, but it was a weird movie that came out in the end of the 90s where it's just like your standard, I mean, there should have been a Sharknado type movie. It's like right, a big giant crocodile movie, but it had this like really A-list, surprisingly A-list cast. And I think it's just because, I mean, the script was written by David E. Kelly, who's like a big writer and like, it was just better written. So that's what I'm like hoping out of Cocaine Bear, which is kind of what it sounds like.
0: And I haven't heard anybody being like, This movie is terrible. No,
1: everything I'm seeing on, like, horror Twitter is, like, people are like, we fucking love Cocaine Bear. And, like, apparently it's really funny. So
0: Amazing. Probably a lot funnier than Avatar would be my guess. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. I remembered what I wanted to tell you. Okay. Did you watch any of the SAG Awards this last weekend?
1: Did not. I read a little bit about them.
0: Okay. Two very amazing things, which are Jamie Lee Curtis... When she went up to get her award, she gave a whole long speech about how she her first acting job was in this show called, I think, Operation Petticoat mm, and how she got fired from that. <laughs> And how I, like, I'm sure you can find this speech online, but I think she, I think if I'm remembering correctly, she went on to be like, you know, I was like heartbroken when I got fired from this job, but it ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me because it let me be in a movie Mm. that became this like cultural phenomenon, which was Halloween. Um, So she does this very much like, it felt very like. You know, I owe my career to horror movies, and yeah. I wouldn't that's, be here today without that.
1: I mean, that's something I've always loved about Jamie Lee Curtis is like, like most actors or uh, many actors, you you get your start in like you know low budget horror because those are the movies that are casting unknowns, and it's like, yeah, Jennifer Aniston was in Leprechaun, and you know Matthew like
0: McConaughey that. was and Renee Zellwerger were in and a Texas, Texas Chainsaw: Chainsop-
1: The like, Next Generation, okay. yeah, uh, <laughs> and like. A lot of times people just want to bury that shit in their resume, but, like, Jamie Lee Curtis has always owned it. Like, she was, like, the OG scream queen, and she's, like, still all about it, you know? Yeah. Never, like, been, never been embarrassed.
0: Not only, mm-hmm. like, has always owned it, but has been like, yes, I will come back to do, yeah. like, the number 17 sequel. Like, right. hell yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, she she came back when they tried to reboot it in the 90s. That kind of mm-hmm. failed. And then now she came back again with a totally yeah. different reboot. Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: Um, yeah. So that was super cool. And then I think I want to look up his name. Uh, but everything, everywhere, all at once, mm. you know, has been winning really big. Which I
1: have, I need to watch that. I haven't seen it. I've heard I need to watch nothing it but good things.
0: Same, same. And I don't, there's something that is like keeping me from watching yeah. it for some reason. I, I don't know what the, it
1: is. It's the multiverse stuff. I think I'm just like had a lot of multiverse. Stuff in my life because mm-hmm. of Marvel. So, okay, fair.
0: Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> that's me,
1: that's what's holding me back,
0: <laughs> right? But they won best ensemble, mm-hmm. and they got up there, and it was really sweet because their speech was like every person read a line from this, oh, like they that's... did a group speech, which was very cute. But that's then right. Michelle Yao got up there and was like, We want to give special props to uh, James Hong who is in this movie and is 94 years old. Wow. And then he got up there and that motherfucker held court for like (laughs) five minutes. (laughs) Just, and he was like, I was, the first movie I was in was with Cary Grant. Wow. Yeah. And he starts talking about yellow face. Mm. (laughs) And it is so amazing the stuff that he does in this speech, and he goes on for, I think, like five minutes, just wow. kind of being like, this is the shit I have put up with in my career. I'm wow. super fucking happy to be up here with this cast for this nice. movie. It is amazing. <laughs> Go and YouTube it because it's a fantastic. Yeah, I'll have to watch that. Fanta- I had no idea that man was 94 years old and he's up there sharp as a tack. Yeah.
1: Did uh, just curious about the SAG Awards, um, yeah. I, and I haven't seen this movie yet either. I keep meaning to. Did, how, did that Tar movie win anything? I
0: don't think so. I was
1: just curious because that's like you know it's Cate Blanchett. Um, It's the guy directed in the bedroom, and it's like his third movie. It's like his first movie in fifteen years, and everyone mm-hmm. thought this was going to dominate the Oscars. But it's like seems like it's like real divisive. So I was just really, I'm really curious about it, and I was really no. curious how it was doing in the awards.
0: No. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is, you know, this is one of those years where it's just like, well, came out against a movie that is like sweeping all of the awards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not a lot, anybody, I feel like it's a little bit like the Tony awards when Hamilton came out, that it was like, well,
1: there there you go. That's, that's the one.
0: (laughs) We did a good show that nobody's going to remember because it was up against Hamilton. Um, Yeah, but there were also a lot of really great speeches, Um, a bunch of really cool stuff too. Like Jamie Lee Curtis won her award, and I know she's been around for a while, but I don't know how many like awards she's gotten. Um, Yeah, that's
1: a good question because I'm thinking it's like I can't think of her being nominated for Oscars and stuff that much.
0: Yeah, and. Jennifer Coolidge also won for her work in White Lotus. Um, And there were a lot of speeches that were just very much like, I have been doing this for years. I have been a working actor. I've I've, like, I've been here and like a lot of like, it's never too late. Like mm-hmm. if this is your, a lot of, if this is your dream, if this is what you want to do, we have one of the best jobs in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm super grateful for everything, but you know, don't get discouraged. Jessica Chastain had this really lovely speech where she talked about how somebody would always say, she heard someone say like, I can't wait to work with you like early, yeah. early on in her career. And that stuck with her. So at the end, she was like, if you were out there and you were an actor, like, I cannot wait to work with you. I can't wait to see you on set. Like it was a lot of really like- <laughs>
1: (laughs) Like big feels. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And just a lot of like, don't give up.
1: I mean, even I didn't watch the awards and I'm forgetting, I feel terrible and forgetting the actor's name, but it's, he was in everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, The guy who played, same
0: thing. Yeah. Short uh, round
1: and data back in the day. And I know he's been doing interviews where he's just like, I thought it was, I was done. Like, I thought it was over for me. Yeah. And here I am. So, yeah.
0: yeah. It's Brendan Fraser, same thing. Like, there's a lot of people who like, either you know did a lot of stuff when they were younger and like sort of fell out of the spotlight and are coming back this year or people who've been like quietly doing work mm-hmm. in not in the background but like unnoticed kind of mm-hmm. and are getting their dues this year and it's just it's really lovely
1: that's great i have very little interest in seeing the whale except for i do feel like i kind of want to because of brendan fraser
0: I don't want to see that movie. I didn't want to see it or read it when it was a play. Mm-hmm. And I'm super thrilled for Brandon Fraser.
1: Yeah. Like, I don't know if I... I mean, I think I will watch everything everywhere all at once. I don't know that I'll ever get to The Whale. Some yeah. of it's subject matter, and some of it is just my patience for Darren Aronofsky films. Mm-hmm. in these later years is, is yeah. limited. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, Same. Anyway. Okay, so that's our little pop culture update. Yeah. Um, who's going first? Is it me this time? I think you are going first. Okay. Well, we're going to
1: stick with the movie theme for the moment. All
2: right.
1: Um, so let me uh, get my... Here, I'll cut this out. Let me get my windows. <laughs> so you <laughs> weren't, I, maybe maybe you weren't ready. I was um, not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to start with a cold open. And it's mm-hmm. fairly long quotes from uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. So he said, this was in an interview. I did not write down where the interview was, but it's a pretty famous thing. screwed teachers talk about this a lot. Like, I first heard this in a screening class, but here's what he says. He says, there's a distinct difference between suspense and surprise, and yet many pictures continually confuse the two. And then he's, like, he's talking to the interviewer. He's like, we are now having a very innocent little chat. Let's suppose that there's a bomb underneath the table between us. Nothing happens, then all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. The public is surprised, but prior to this surprise, it has been an absolutely ordinary scene, of no special consequence. Now let us take a suspense situation. The bomb is underneath the table and the public knows it, probably because they have seen the anarchist place it there. The public is aware the bomb is going to explode at 1 o'clock and there's a clock in the decor. The public can see that it is a quarter to one. In these conditions, the same innocuous conversation becomes fascinating because the public is participating in the scene. The audience is longing to warn the characters on the screen. You shouldn't be talking about such trivial matters. There's a bomb beneath you, and it's about to explode. In the first case, we have given the public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion. In the second, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. The conclusion is that whenever possible, the public must be informed. Except when the surprise is a twist. That is, when the unexpected ending is, in itself, the highlight of the story. Mm-hmm. So this leads to my subject this week. This is a real film geeky uh, subject, but it's just something. Love it. Uh, this is something I love talking to my students about. But I'm going to talk about the history of the jump
0: scare. Amazing. Let's get into it.
1: So everyone knows what a jump scare is, right? Basically, a jump scare like like surprise happens when the audience knows either as much or less than the characters on the screen. That's okay. when surprise happens. Suspense happens when you know more than the characters on the screen. Mm-hmm. A jump scare typically happens when you think you know more than the character, but then you end up knowing even less. Um, Beautiful. So it's basically you think you know it's going to happen, you're waiting for the thing to happen. And then when it happens, it's a total surprise. Okay. You know, it depends a lot on misdirection. So there are a few types of jump scares. Um, one is that we know there's a threat. But the timing is a surprise, and we'll talk okay. about that here in a second. Another is as uh, a specific one is, you see this a lot in uh, like ghost movies, is the mirror scare, where a character <laughs> suddenly sees someone in the mirror that, behind them that's not supposed to be there.
0: Oh, my God. Anytime <laughs> you're in a movie and somebody opens up a medicine cabinet, I'm like. You know when they close it, it's going to be you sh- know, yeah, <laughs> You know some fucked up wet bitch is going to be behind him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, and I think... I'm
0: always just like, I hate it. I hate it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh. I think the best mirror scare in uh, horror movie history, for me, is the opening of Candyman. Uh. The original Candyman. Yeah. Absolutely. And then uh, this is mainly what we're going to be talking about today, because this is like really the basis of what we talk about with jump scares, is something called the Luton Bus. And so I'll talk about what that means here in a second. But let, but first, let's, let's talk about the science of a jump scare. Okay. What? makes a jump scare work okay um so <laughs> in the hitchcock example where he's just talking about basic surprise it's like blah 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 going about our life nothing who cares you know and then something crazy happens mm-hmm. i think of one of the best example i always have to go to the west wing but one of the like classic examples of this is i think it's the end of season five when donna is blown up in the convoy <gasps>
3: Oh, yeah. Um,
1: If you haven't seen the West Wing, it's one of the characters. She's over. Sorry, spoilers. (laughs) Spoiler. Um, She's over in, I think, the Gaza Strip. She's doing like a coat what's called a Codell, which is she's traveled over with some Congress people to like do a fact-finding mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you see her and a bunch of the people on this delegation like get into a bunch of SUVs. She's kind of joking around with a character who's like the retired uh, chief of staff of the military, mm-hmm. uh, Fitz. And then as they're talking the a bomb goes off under the uh SUV. And mm-hmm. then uh, you know, uh, mayhem ensues. Um yeah. it, that's almost exactly like the Hitchcock quote, you know. Yeah, yeah. you are sitting there having just like an innocuous conversation and then boom. With a jump scare is you have to start with suspense and then it's about the misdirection. Because when you start with suspense and you create a sense of anticipation, you've got a, the audience knowing that the scare is coming. Mm. But they don't know what the scare is going to be or when exactly it's going to come. What you do is you create a state of, quote, hypervigilance. What you're doing is you're activating their amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for fear, anxiety, self-preservation, all of this stuff.
0: Is the amygdala your lizard brain?
1: I think I I I should have looked that up. I think it might be because a lot of like the amygdala is in control of like.
0: I'm just wondering um, because it seems so survival based, right? Like. It is.
1: I think, well, and and that kind of gets to what I'm going to talk about. So you're activating the amygdala, and the more you can just, like, pump that amygdala button, Mm -hmm. you're pumping the brain full of chemicals. And this leads to what's called the amygdala hijack phenomenon. Ooh. Which basically means you're hijacking somebody's rational thoughts and you're creating a situation where they feel like they're in a fight or flight situation. So okay. you're you over-delighting the rational mind and you're creating an intense emotional and even irrational response. So if you're watching a movie and something crazy happens, like a bomb explodes or something, you might have like a momentary like, oh shit, you're startled. But you're still kind of, a you're still in your rational brain thing. So you're very quickly back to like, well, it's only a movie, right? Right. But if you can read... Really successfully just like milk That amygdala like you know mm-hmm. Pulling on a cow's <laughs> udders <laughs> Um you, you can actually really get people To forget they're in a movie
0: So that's what happens with like Haunted houses right is that like You yeah, should be able to yeah. be like I'm walking through this I'm in a warehouse I chose to be Here every like rationally I understand right. that everybody here is an actor But at a certain point after Jump scare after jump scare after jump scare You, you just start being like I'm yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in this like well, you know, if, Lunatic asylum done, With a guy with a chainsaw right If they're done really
1: well and there's a little bit of Albuquerque log rolling here, Um, but we have a theater company in town that does a kind of yearly sort of haunted house type interactive thing called Quarantine. Mm -hmm. And what they do pretty well, I think usually, I haven't been to every Quarantine, is by building their haunted house a little bit more around a narrative, Mm -hmm. they give themselves room not just to have like jump scare, then another jump scare, then another jump scare, which like a lot of haunted houses just like you're in dark and then something jumps out at you. But they actually wrap it around A narrative enough that it's able to create a sense of suspense so when the jump happens it's more effective yeah um because you know like i said you're you're creating a situation where people actually because the amygdala is creating this irrational fight-or-flight response people actually can like almost entirely forget they're watching a movie Wow. Very um, cool. And so that's where, like, jump scares are often shit upon by critics, and you mm-hmm. know, is, like, kind of cheap. But when a jump scare is well executed, it is, I mean, it's it's the heart and soul of, like...
0: I, if I may, can I interrupt with mm-hmm. two examples of, I think, movies that use jump... One that uses jump scares really well, and then another mm-hmm. that I think did not. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> go for it <laughs> I feel like the ring used jump scares really mm. well it
1: does yeah that's a good
0: one I didn't write that down on my list but that's a good one yeah like when she goes in and she like it's because it, it's not always like you know like oh and then a character's there sometimes it's like weird flashbacks mm-hmm. so when like they find the girl like in her closet right <laughs> mm-hmm. I I was but, like what am I watching what am I I'm I'm oh, in a middle
1: and that's great because like you know something happened to this girl and then you're cutting away and you're like you're right like what happened to this girl Girl, you know, yeah. so that you know that the it's when you know the reveal is coming, but it's still not coming. Right. Like, it's like it are burst you know? out. Yeah. That's so, triggering that amygdala. Yeah.
0: So I feel like that one works really well. A movie that I hated because I felt like the story was super weak mm-hmm. and they relied on jump scares was the 2000 movie, What Lies Beneath, with Michelle Mm. Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. That one's often, you find that on a lot of lists, basically saying the same thing, where
1: it's like, without the jump scare, there's nothing (laughs) there. (laughs) Well,
0: and it's also things that like, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer like goes into the refrigerator when she closes it, somebody's there. And so you're like, oh my God, a person. But then the guy's like, hey, are we having like, are we doing pork chops tonight for dinner? mm Mm-hmm. Or, like, there's no, yeah. it's, like, just a jump scare for the sake of, like, a quick, like, well, and well, then that, and That's else. a
1: version of the Luton bus, which I'm going to get to in a second, which okay, is the fantastic. idea of a jump scare that, like, turns out to be innocuous. Okay. But that is, like, I really feel like the Luton bus approach is, like, less is more of that. Because the more you're, like, kind of doing the cheap trick of, like, oh, it was just a cat coming out of I the
0: feel like it I feel like it's, I feel like that movie is riddled with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. That one's really pretty I, that, really I haven't be- seen it in a while but that one is pretty bad it's, it's gratuitous trying, it's trying real hard to be a hitchcock film and just
0: yes. Missing the mark. <laughs> yes absolutely yeah.
1: yeah no that's a that, those are good examples i didn't write either of those down but those are good examples but yeah so again you know back to the amygdala you know you're creating a sense of suspense which is conditioning the audience to actually be more startled than they would be if it just is the thing that happens bomb under the table right so let's talk about the first jump scares okay um, it's a little debatable what you would call the actual first jump scare. A lot of them talk about the Luton bus as the first jump scare, but really it comes a little bit earlier. So we need to go back to the 1920s. Let's go back. With a movie we've actually already talked about or mentioned before on here, way back when we were talking about the movie Freaks. Um, right. we're gonna talk about Phantom of the Opera from 1925. Okay, starring the. Of course, the infamous Lon Chaney Sr. Friend so, of the pod. Friend of the pod, Lon Chaney Sr. <laughs> so this is from, oh, I didn't, let me real quickly give my sources. I forgot to do that. Oh. So Wikipedia, Far Out Magazine, Collider.com, Independent.co.uk, okay. MovieWeb, <laughs> HorrorGeekLife.com, TheNewsHouse.com, and The Lineup. So Beautiful. This is a quote from independent.com com or <laughs> dot co dot UK. <laughs> and they're basically describing what happens and why this was like the big jump scare of the day he says the phantom's mask is torn off to reveal the iconic shot of Lon Chaney with pins in his nostrils revealing the famous horrifying face we all know now and i'll mm-hmm. post a picture of that In social media. It says, this is an early jump scare. It is not as effective now as it would have been in 1925. Phantom was a silent film with no synchronized recorded sound, meaning no musical score. Showings of silent films would almost always be accompanied by live orchestral music, but we have no reference for what that music would have been in 1925. Mm. Sound can be integral to a jump scare. If it builds getting louder and louder before cutting out to painful silence, then boom, A loud, high-pitched noise makes the scare not just visual, but auditory, too. And so the lack of original music makes it difficult to imagine what it was like in 1925. Apparently, audience members screamed with horror and even fainted, which seems ridiculous now.
0: Um, I but, feel like that happened with a. I feel like that happened throughout horror movie history mm-hmm. of like people fainting, people vomiting, pregnant women this, <laughs> like giving spontaneous well, birth. That
1: that was the whole story about freaks it was like yeah. <laughs> some woman goes into labor or whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean i've had this experience as a horror fan where it's like i've seen things you know stuff that i saw back in like the early 90s that seems so just like oh my god and then you watch it now and it's like pretty dated you mm, know mm-hmm, and the special mm-hmm. effects were seemed so amazing back then just don't hold and i feel like that's kind of what they're saying with the phantom of the opera is that like if you can put yourself in the mindset of that audience mm. who was like the whole idea of motion pictures was pretty new and like they never see and like that makeup is pretty genuinely horrifying. Yeah. Um, I can see how it would have been shocking, but it is funny to think of like people fainting and stuff at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so that's probably the first real jump scare. Okay. Uh but the one that everyone really talks about comes almost two decades later. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history of RKO Pictures. Okay. And archaeo horror and its kind of rivalry with Universal horror. Mm, okay so RKO was kind of the last of like the big five movie studios during Hollywood's golden age I should have written down what those studios were but it was like Warner Brothers Universal MGM Uh there's one other one so
0: United Artists
1: maybe United Artists yeah and then RKO
0: okay
1: um RKO really came about because of the transition to sound Mm. It was formed in nineteen twenty-eight after the Keith Albee Orpheum Theater Chain and the Joseph P. Kennedy's film booking offices of America. It's um, way
0: too long. I, know. <laughs>
1: I don't even know it's word salad. I don't even know what it means. But uh they came together under the control of the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, um, in October of nineteen twenty-eight. the whole purpose was RCA had created something called the photophone, which was a sound on film. It was proprietary sound on film technology, and they wanted to like get that out there. You know mm-hmm. they knew that like, you know, we're starting to do these talkies. We need new technologies to put the sound on the film, you know on the right. phone. Show. So that's what their photophone technology was. Well, unfortunately, all of the other studios had already started working with a t and at and T had a subsidiary called ERPI. And they had created the Vitaphone and Movietone sound systems. Okay. So this Photophone was like came a little bit late. So they're like, well, to create this market, let's just create a studio and and just put out our own movies. So that's how RKO basically started. It became RKO, which is an abbreviation of Radio Keith Orpheum, in 1929. A couple years later, they brought in the the French movie studio Pathé Films. Their American arm was kind of brought into UK or RKO. Okay. Um, and then they started actually putting out, like, radio theater. They had something called the RKO Radio Hour on M- NBC. And that they used to, like, promote their movies. So that's how, like, even though they were a brand new studio, you had these other four studios that were already pretty entrenched. Mm-hmm. Um, here's this brand new studio trying to find a way to, like, get itself in the market. Well, having this radio hour on uh, NBC kind of gave them a little bit of an edge. But, you know, they were still the, like, do you remember the, like, into the 80s when Fox TV finally, like, became a network. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, it was, you know, we had the three networks. I mean, this is how old I feel at the moment. But, like, I remember the days when it was basically CBS, NBC, and ABC. And mm-hmm. then when Fox started, it was probably, like, 86, 87, something like that okay it was like you know they had to like separate themselves from the other packs, so they were that's why they were doing stuff like the simpsons and married with children it was all like skewing to a younger demographic and like a little Weird. edgier and you know stuff like yeah that. and so that's kind of the where rko was at the time but in 1931 universal which had already been around universal was created by carl lamely and he essentially handed the company over to his 21 year old son, Carl Limley Jr., as a birthday present. Like, talk about Nepo baby shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> like, he was just like, here, son, here's my movie studio. Right, right. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. In fact, like, Universal was actually like, infamous for this like where carl lamely the elder would basically just hire like his relative um so like apparently a bunch of his nephews worked for the company and uh, he was known as quote uncle carl on the street because he was literally uncle carl
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: but yeah so he hands it over to carl lamely jr well you know yes he's a Napa baby but also he's a young guy and he's like we need to like modernize this we need to like get on board with like the coming of the talkies you know okay I think he was given the company in, like, the late 20s. So he was really, like, responsible for kind of, like, ushering Universal into the talkie era. And he was like, we need to, like, put out these big prestige movies. So they started doing these big, like, in the late 20s, these big prestige films that would have been, like, the Oscar bait. You know what we call Oscar bait?
3: Right, right, right.
1: And I didn't even write down any of them because they all flopped. Like, none of them succeeded. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like Carl Jr. was, like, maybe looking like he was gonna be a short timer is yeah here but then he was like he had kind of a brainstorm he was like you know what there's all these old scary books that are either the rights are available for like not that much money Mm -hmm. or they i don't know if they had like the same concept of public domain that we have today but yeah but they were like we can like do relatively cheap but not super cheap horror movies based on these classic novels including dracula frankenstein the invisible man hg wells the invisible man uh things like that and this is what of course became universal horror so when you're talking like you know the iconic universal horror movies you know uh dracula frankenstein the wolfman yeah comes out of this era they were like i said relatively inexpensive to make Mm -hmm. um but he still wanted like big production values one other thing that he was doing is this is the era of vertical integration in movies okay studios which meant uh Movie studios, like, they own the production arm they own the distribution arm and the exhibition arm so it's like they had okay. their own movie theaters that they were right. screening their own movies in. this of course got broken up in the end of the 40s it was like an antitrust thing and that's why okay. movie theaters got kind of carved off from they became mm. independent well because they had their own universal you know movie theaters there was a what they used to do is like you would basically go to a double feature they'd have the a picture would be like that's the big draw and then they'd have the b movie which sometimes they would start with the B movie because it's supposed to warm you up and that's where the term mm. b movie comes from is it's like the cheaper sort of warm-up film for like the big and then they would have like Disney cartoons and and right between. so he was like essentially I think they were kind of making these universal monster movies as kind of B movies but they were like they have to be of a quality enough that like you know they're you know they're striking to people. They were very char- They were characterized by like relatively lush cinematography. Often this was, you know, obviously at the time of World War II. A lot mm-hmm. of German. Filmmakers were like, fuck this and getting out of Germany. Mm, mm-hmm. So you had all these German expressionists coming over to the U.S. And so okay. if you look at the universal horror movies of the time, they're taking a lot visually from German expressionism um, with the lighting and like yeah. off-kilter camera angles and stuff and the sets. Because they were using a lot of the set designers and cinematographers and stuff for these, like, refugees. Mm -hmm. So they were known for this, like, very kind of lush cinematography, uh, striking special effects, which is going to be important. Okay. Where it was all about the reveal of the monster. Like, if you Mm -hmm. watch... You know, Frankenstein has, you know, the reveal of the monsters, they open the door, and he kind of steps out of the shadows, and boom, there's the monster. Or in uh, The Wolfman, it's the famous Lap Dissolves, where you see his transformation into the Wolfman, and it's, like, Mm -hmm. real corny today, but at the time, it was like, how'd
0: they do? That's magical. Yeah,
1: they're also most often based on classic novels or not necessarily original material. There are a few exceptions, like the Mummy and the Wolfman, aren't like directly based on anything, okay. but they're pulling from a lot of sources and kind of you know okay um they tended to be period pieces um they're historical films usually they're usually set in rural areas to give them this like gothic feel so it's like you know dracula's castle
3: right
1: um or in frankenstein it's frankenstein's castle (laughs) yeah or the lab is you know so it's like a fair amount of money is being put into the spectacle of these films Mm -hmm. the first of well you could say that actually, Phantom of the Opera is kind of the first Universal monster movie because mm-hmm. I think was the success of that is kind of what inspired Carl Jr. to be like, okay. "Hey, we could keep doing this." Mm -hmm. Um, But really, the first of this era was Dracula. That's from 1931. Directed by Todd Browning, who, of course, we talked about on The Freaks episode. Right. Um, What is that? Victorian pornography? I think that's Victorian pornography. I think it's Victorian pornography. Yeah. (laughs) Early, early uh, OG weirdest thing. I think
0: it was (laughs) like episode. episode five or something. Or something,
1: yeah. But he directed Dracula. It starred, of course, Bela Lugosi. It's usually considered the first of the classic universal horror films. Also generally consider one of the weaker ones unless you watch the Mexican or the Spanish right
0: you talked about that one as well
1: right it was made for about $350,000 which was still relatively low budget but that is about almost $7 million by today's standards and then in its first year of release it ended up going on to make $700,000 so it made about $13.5 million and then of course it's been reissued it became like big on like late night TV so you know I don't know what the end of the day box office for it was but you know it was a successful film
0: yeah
1: um frankenstein and the bride of frankenstein that's from 31 in 1933 uh Mm -hmm. obviously starring boris karloff directed by james whale if you want speaking of brendan Fraser, if you want to see a great brendan Fraser performance go back and watch gods and monsters Mm -hmm. uh with him and um ian mccallum playing an aging james whale okay um they're they're generally considered like the best Of the Universal Horror. Like, James Whale was kind of one of the more uh, visually inventive. He was just one of the better directors. Okay. Uh, To be doing these movies. Dracula's Daughter is also, like, really highly thought of. It's from 1936. Okay. um, Directed by Lambert Hillier and starring Gloria Holden. That's kind of one that people don't talk about so much today, but it's sort of the fans really, like, point to it as one of the better universal horror movies. The the trend lasted kind of into the 1940s. Well, really through the 40s. But over time it was just sequelitis, you know, son of Frankenstein. And mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden it was like Frankenstein meets the wolfman, and then it was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And,
3: <laughs> right. You know, so the
1: whole <laughs> thing just got kind of overdone by the end. <laughs> right. The last real universal horror movie was the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh mm-hmm. 1954, directed by Jack Arnold and starring Richard Carlson and Julia Adams. So Again, like, one thing that these movies, like, the scares, like, these were atmospheric films, but the atmosphere was very driven by set design, makeup, things like that. And -hmm. the scare was about the fact that Frankenstein looks scary. Look at this scary monster. Right. Or the wolfman looks scary. It's about what we're actually looking at. Right. So that was the universal monster thing. Well, RKO, again, is, like, the scrappy, you know, fox tv version of a movie studio at the time mm-hmm. they were like universal is just pulling in so much money with these movies we need to start our own horror division And this is started in the 40s so about 10 years later they're like we're gonna get in on this and they hired a guy who's a novelist a guy named val luton to run their horror division Okay. Um so Val Luton, he was a Russian Jew He was origi- originally named Vladimir Ivanovich Leventon. Okay. His family immigrated to the US in 1909 when he was 5. Um, he finally became a US citizen in 1941 and was officially renamed Vladimir Ivan Luton and then he would go by Val. So he was known as Val Luton. He started working as a reporter when he was a teenager for the Darien Stamford Review. I didn't look up where that was. But they fired him when he was 16 because they found out that one of his stories, which was about a truckload of kosher chickens that died in the New York heat wave, Mm -hmm. uh, total fabrication. It just made it up.
0: Okay, great. This is like
1: like I was a journalism major and I realized I was like I really shouldn't be a journalist because like I remember back in the day being like I could just like, you know, make this beef, story a little bit. Beef better. it up I a could little beef bit. This up. Yeah. And I was like, I should write fiction. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's what my brain is telling me. Um, yeah. So he went on to study journalism, but then in the 30s he became known as a novelist. He his novel No Bed of Her Own was published in 1932. Later that year, it was released as a movie called No Man of Her Own, mm. um, because you can't have you know talk of beds in movies, right? Scandalous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's our Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. And then the following year, he published a secret erotic novel called Grushenka three turns a woman <laughs> okay <laughs> this is a great title um the whole frame story was apparently that this was a like a memoir of some of grushenka who's a woman in the soviet union and her sexual escapades and it's been smuggled into the u.s now brilliant a, the getting off basically
0: gorgeous so, okay
1: good for you Val and then because of the success of some of his novels he went out west I think he was based in New York and then he went out to Hollywood and started working at MGM as a screenwriter at first MGM hired him to actually novelize movies and then his novelizations would appear in like popular magazines hmm but before and long, David O. Selznick, who at the time was at MGM but then moved over to RKO, uh, kind of brought him on as one of his stable of screenwriters. So some of the movies he worked on were like *A Tale of Two Cities* in 1935. He was also an uncredited screenwriter on *Gone with the Wind*, hmm, uh, which was okay. 1939. Specifically, I've never seen *Gone with the Wind*. Um, <laughs> I, I think we've t- I think we've talked about it. I know
0: you're not a fan. Um, it's just. Endless. That's for it's it's that's for a whole other episode. Yes, yeah. it is.
1: Well, he specifically wrote a scene you might remember, uh, where the camera pulls back to reveal hundreds of wounded soldiers in an Atlanta depot. I think it's a
0: famous shot.
1: You look like you don't remember. So <laughs> um, I remember
0: very little about the movie, to be completely honest, because I was just like, okay, uh, like Mine <laughs> yeah. has been numb. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, if we have any Gone with the Wind fans out there, you probably know the scene. <laughs> so. Yes. And one of his other duties, uh, Selznick, was had him working as a story editor. He was actually mediating censorship disputes with, like, this is the area of the Hays Code. Okay. So he was in there, like, trying to argue for things with the Hays people. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was looking for novels to adapt. Um, Okay. But eventually... RKO was like, we want some of that universal horror money, uh, so we're going to create a horror division. And they brought on Val Luton to be the head of their horror unit. He got a salary of about $250 a week to do this. That's a little less than $5,000 a week now. And he had to follow three hard and fast rules. And these are going to be important when we get back to the idea of the jump scare and why the jump scare kind of came about. So, if you remember, I said uh, Frankenstein cost $350,000. Mm-hmm. Well, all the RKM movies had to cost under $150,000. So, okay. like, a third of the cost or something. Yeah. They had to all be under 75 minutes long. They're really okay. approaching them as B-movies, I think, as part of you know, Double okay. Features. And then the way that they would come out is that Luton's bosses above him would come up with titles. And be like, we should do a movie called blah blah blah, and then it was up to him to like put it together. So, so to make
0: a make a movie from a title based on a title, and they were
1: always so. Here's some like famous RKO horror movies. Uh, okay. I Walked with a Zombie from 1943. Ooh, okay. The Body Snatcher, in 1945. Isle mm-hmm. of the Dead, Bedlam, 1946. So it's like these sensational titles, and it's like go like knock out a script you remember i was a little bit barton fink like we need a
0: wrestling picture right i'm go just write thinking a wrestling like picture all of the other ones gave an indication right mm-hmm. of like what the thing <laughs> bedlam is like that could be anything. <laughs> is, it's just rude it's like i don't know just make it fucking crazy yeah. and scary <laughs> bye bye good luck <laughs> <laughs> Also cheap and fast. Um,
1: yeah. Um, so, he had to, so he was a little bit of like the Barton Fink character. He had to like, okay, I walked with a zombie. Uh, what do I do with this? Well, good news was he didn't actually have to write these things. He would always do the final draft on the scripts. But he was hiring a bunch of writers. He was basically like, um, like a producer. He was working as a okay. producer. So because of these restrictions... There were some things that happened with the RKO movies that really set them apart from the Universal movies. Mm
3: -hmm. So they
1: tended to be a lot grittier visually. You know, like I said, the Universal movies had this kind of lush cinematography to them. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have time for that at RKO. So they tended to just go for like a more kind of slice of life look. Okay. Um, they couldn't afford the elaborate sets and costumes, so they tended to be contemporary rather than historical. They also tended to be urban rather than rural because they just wanted to shoot them on studio backlots and in the cities. Okay. So lots of city streets, stuff like that. A lot of the RKO horror movies are seen as like kind of prefiguring like film noir, which kind of was happening around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's very some very similar stylistic things happening. Oh, and then another thing is they tended to be original concepts based on stupid titles rather than classic novels. So, <laughs> yeah, we we don't want, we're not gonna do Frankenstein, but um, I walk with a zombie sounds cool. Go figure okay. that. Out.
0: You know. Yeah.
1: Interestingly, even the Boris Karloff, by the way, is like known for Frankenstein, he was in a bunch of RKO films. Like he was in really? The Rocket Snatcher and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So, because of this, because of these restrictions where they couldn't have elaborate sets, they couldn't have elaborate makeup, you know, like at Universal, they had a guy named Jack Pierce who was known as their makeup guy. He was like the Stan Winston of his day. Mm-hmm. He came up with the Wolfman look and the Frankenstein with the flat top head. And right. They just didn't have that at RKO. So they were like, how are we going to make these movies scary? So RKO was like, we need to focus on what the audience doesn't see. Okay. So whereas like the atmospheric nature of a universal horror movie is very, like I said, based on like the 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 sets and the costumes and, and the makeup of the monster makeup. With RKO, it was about like shadows. It's about what's hidden in the shadows, what's happening right off camera. Okay. So that meant that, you know, their movies were also very atmospheric, but in a very different way. And there was a lot that they did with sound design. So, the Luton bus. And I'm going to actually show you the scene. <laughs> okay. And I don't want you to kind of narrate it to the audience. I'll share it here in a minute. But the very first RKO film under Luton, of the RKO horror film, was the movie Cat People uh, from 1942. Okay. Um, Directed by French director Jacques Tournier. I forgot to write down who the screenwriter was. It starred a woman named Simone Simon and a guy named Kent Smith. And the basic plot, just so you know, won't spend a lot of time on it. But it's about a dude played by Smith who falls in love with this mysterious Eastern European. I think he sees her at a zoo and she's like drawing the panther at the zoo. Mm Mm-hmm. She's this mysterious woman from Eastern Europe. I think her name is like Arena. And then they, you know, it's about their relationship. They're falling in love, but she eventually reveals that she descends from a family of cat people. And if her passions are aroused, she'll turn into a panther. So she's like okay. a water cat,
3: basically. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, cool. Uh, if you want to see a real trashy version of this, uh, they remade it in the 80s with Nastasha yeah. uh, Kinsky and Malcolm McDowell. It's like yeah. real, like 80s, like sex sleeves. <laughs> But it's great. <laughs> I love it. Um, that's also where the David Bowie "Cat People" "Putting Out the Fire" song comes from.
0: That uh, just that the 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 hold that that particular genre had, which was like, uh, I believe you can find those movies on Netflix under mm-hmm. "sexual thriller." Yes, uh, which were it was like I. It's like a suspenseful movie. There's some scary stuff in it, Whoa. but like a lot of sleazy sex.
1: Yeah, and it's all like very like artfully shot, but in like. Yeah yeah Real.
0: Real, lots like of lots like, of, chrome like, of
1: chrome and neon and stuff yeah and
0: lots of like orange light coming through the <laughs> blinds
1: yeah it's all movies like basic instinct which i by the way just re recently that's not a good movie
0: oh that movie is garbage uh <laughs> so what bad. is the one what is the one with madonna i'm gonna look it up uh, oh body sh- of evidence yes
1: <laughs> madonna and willem dafoe i just remember the candles that- movie is
0: fucking sleazy <laughs> it's um,
1: dirty <laughs> it's dirty well cat people's a little the cat people remakes a little earlier but it's also pretty fucking dirty yeah
0: um,
1: okay continue but, but anyway but the 1940s version not so much it's all about suggestions so so she's a wear cat, but they get married but she can't have sex with him because she if she consummates the marriage she's going to turn into a panther and eat him okay so he's getting real blue ballsy Uh Uh and meanwhile he's gotten i don't remember what his job is but he's got an assistant played by jane randolph and they're getting closer and closer and i think he like confides to her that like you know there's things going on in my marriage meanwhile arena the cat lady wife is like getting jealous of the assistant and starts stalking her so that's the setup for the scene i'm going to show you i'm going to share my screen hold on okay all right so Here's just a clip off of YouTube. It's about okay. a minute and a half, but this is the Luton bus. So if you could kind of, as you're watching, just kind of tell, tell the
0: audience what's happening. Okay. Okay. So, here we go. All right. We see a finely dressed. Oh, there's two women. So that's a walking down the street. Yeah. Okay. Uh Huh? They're walking through like an estuary or something. It's, it looks like some type <laughs> of a drainage canal. <laughs> it kind of does. Okay, they're walking. There goes one woman. She's walking. There goes the other woman who's presumably following her.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, we see a shot of the first woman, her feet walking. Second woman, feet walking so loudly. Like, I can't believe they can't hear each other. (laughs) Up, footsteps stopped. We see the first woman walking. She's still completely unaware. It's very dark. You're seeing like some lighting bouncing off of her lighter colored coat and stuff. She's pausing by a lamp post and she's looking behind her now. What's back there? <laughs> she's like, mm, I thought I heard something. She's starting to pick up her pace. And she's like pausing at the streetlights to see if she can see what's behind her. Running, 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 running. Pause. Look behind. Oh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. Uh, so what happened? So you're riding with me it? What happened was she was pauses at a street lamp and it's quiet, right? Like the street is completely quiet mm-hmm. and then you hear a like and you think it's gonna be oh my god like the cat woman but instead a bus comes like screeching <laughs> right. in the frame and then the <laughs> guy's like are you getting on this bus or what ma'am so yeah. yeah it's it's a misdirection to lead you to believe that you're about to see her mauled by this cat woman mm-hmm. but instead it was the guy on the city bus yeah. uh and- <laughs> <laughs> that so was that, so silly.
1: That is real silly by today's standards. But I could imagine like, audience at the time probably jumped fucking out of their seat.
0: I mean, I I, I was like, oh, it's the bus. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So that is the Luton bus.
0: So literally a bus.
1: It's literally a bus. So okay. the Luton bus is considered the, the kind of the prototype for the modern jump scare. Okay. Like, this is the first jump scare using sound and, you know, but yeah, there you go. So I I have to say I do kind of love these because I'm not actually that – big of a fan of a lot of the universal movies and a lot of it's because they're like over lit and it's just like not that inventive visually it's just like look at our big set new look at you know our spooky monster dude or whatever right um, like frankenstein and of frankenstein are pretty great and dracula's daughter is good actually the invisible man's pretty good but like a lot of them are just not that good but i kind of love these rko ones because they're so i mean things like the loot and bust is just because like well we can't actually show the panther you know yeah so, you know, yeah. how the fuck are we going to get a panther? Right. Or we can't show her turning into a panther. Right. We don't have the money for that. So, but you know what we can't get is a fucking bus. So it's just the inventiveness of that. So that right. is the classic jump scare. Okay. Okay. I'm going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit here, but I'm going to talk about just some of the like great jump scares. Okay. History. So probably the next really great one that people talk about is from the movie, The Thing from Another World. So from mm-hmm. 1951, it's directed by a guy named Christian Nyby, produced and co-written by Howard Hawks. There's a real controversy over, like, did Howard Hawks really direct the thing from Another okay. World? It's kind of like the Poltergeist. Like, did Spielberg secretly direct Poltergeist? Kind of question. Okay. It's based on the novella Who Goes There from 1958, written by John W. Campbell, who was a famous editor, science fiction editor. I think he edited astounding stories. Also, like, apparently real racist, but, you know. Clearly. Yeah. By the way, uh, The Thing from Another World was, or Who Goes There, was remade one more time in the movie The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. (laughs) Which is my favorite horror movie of all time. And actually, yep. the Carpenter version is much closer to the novella plot wise. But The Thing from Another World is pretty great for what it is of like kind of sci fi horror of the 50s. Mm-hmm. But it's got another real classic jump scare. I'm, so I'm going to show you that one. And this one's longer. So I'm going to like jump forward because we, okay, there's like a lot of shit like set up at the beginning that we don't need. So let's start. I'm going to actually turn okay, us there? down because they talk okay. a bunch. Okay. So what's happening?
0: Okay, it was a bunch of, uh, I don't know, are they soldiers or something? They're walking through, all these people, they're walking through this tunnel.
1: <laughs>
0: and they get into a room and the guy in the lead door. stops them. Okay, some of them, some of them go off on like a side mission. Okay. Yeah, they're just, they're looking around, I think. I'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing. Yeah, it doesn't matter what to say. Okay. All right, they, they're they about should... to go, they're about to go through a door. <gasps> oh! <laughs> <laughs> that's what
1: happened there. <laughs> I love your they, reaction.
0: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear how that's going to sound on the audio of this. <laughs> Okay, so they open the door and there was a big monster back there who just like, like swept his arm into the room. And the guy at the front closes the door on the arm. And so then it's like, you kind of like saw the arm kind of struggling and then they finally are Hmm. able to like shut the door (laughs) so this is it all... also kind of looked like the actor playing the monster was a little like oh like oh, they, <laughs> oh they... shit <laughs> yeah.
1: oh you mean go now yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait was it's that actually? It yeah
3: it's a little what it looked like amazing yeah.
1: okay uh a little trivia the actor playing the monster uh is actually james arness who went on to fame on television on the show bonanza
0: fantastic good
1: for him later. a few years later okay we're going to talk about what is largely considered the greatest jump scare of all time it's from the movie psycho it's not the scene that you probably think it's going to be so psycho 1960 directed by alfred hitchcock written by joseph stefano based on the novel psycho from 1959 written by robert block starring anthony perkins janet lee Vera miles and then the guy you're looking at here is martin balsam
0: yeah and Which is gonna... why I think I'm like I think I know what scene this is. Yeah, and it this... is fuck. It's awful. Let's yeah. let's rock and roll. Let's do it.
1: Here we go. Okay, I'm gonna jump forward again. So okay. We don't need to watch all the walking around the hotel stuff. Yeah. Okay. okay.
0: Okay. So what I'm seeing is a guy. He's walking into the house. If you know mm. Psycho, you know what house I'm talking about. If you don't, what are you doing here? <laughs> he's looking around, and he's like, oh, "Okay, I'm gonna." He walks in the front door. He's a gentleman, so he's taken off his hat before he enters the house. (laughs) And he's looking around, he's in like the, you know, like the front kind of parlor area. I hate this scene so much. He's looking around, he looks down the hallway, Hmm, sees a staircase in front of him, looks over to the other side, sees a set of closed doors. And he decides, makes the decision, let me go up into this scary ass house. Yeah, it's a strong
1: choice.
0: Uh huh. So he's, this is a long shot of him like walking up this like endless staircase. A door somewhere like creaks open, just a sliver of it. Doors opening back to the dude walking up the (laughs) stairs. And it was like, Jesus,
3: I hate this.
0: Okay. So what we saw there was, like I said, the door was opening. (laughs) That volume was so, that volume was too loud. Um, The guy walking up the stair, the door creaks open, and then it's like a bird's eye view of the guy almost reaching the landing of the staircase. And then you see what appears to be like a, a granny come running out of the room with a knife. I think you see her go to stab him, but then the next shot is him with some blood splattered and like it's a long shot of him falling. Right. Um, yeah, the granny running out is the jump scare in that one. I fucking, I hate that scene. <laughs> so- yeah, that scene- Fucked me
1: up so bad. Yeah. Well, so the psycho one and the thing from another world one, they work different than they're not real loot and bus scenes because the loot and bus is like spooky, spooky. What's going to happen? Oh, it's a bus. So it's it's, it's innocuous. This is like, okay, we know this. This is back to the idea like we know the scare is coming, but they're taking their time to get us there. I think it's somewhat more effective in psycho in a way because it's like you really know that there's a scare coming and the thing from another world there's we i kind of turn the volume down but you hear there's a lot of like witty banter that is kind of yeah
0: and there's it's a lot of like you go over here and look for stuff that we're gonna need and And then they're just they're just like in the middle of what they're doing and And then then, boom monster
1: yeah right so here's a few other great jump scares from movie history Mm -hmm. uh so the head coming out of the boat in jaws 1975 this is when richard dreyfus hooper is down checking out the boat and he finds the tooth and then the head floats out of him Uh uh-huh uh, the hand coming out of the grave in Brian De Palma's Carrie from 1976. Uh, yeah. This established the trope of, like, slasher movies always ending with a dream sequence where something scary happens. Okay. For instance, Jason coming out of the lake at the end of Friday the 13th, 1980. Oh, um, spooky. Here's one I wouldn't have thought of if I saw on the list, the Dilophosaurus scene in Jurassic Park. So this is the scene where the Wayne Knight character, I can't remember, but he's the the guy, he's Uh like the bad bad guy who's shutting down the park because he's stealing the embryos.
0: Yeah.
1: Newman from Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, He's like trying to escape and he comes to like and then I think he runs his jeep off the road, and he's like trying to winch it out. And then this cute little dinosaur is like, he's like, "What's yeah. what's going on, little buddy?" And it yeah. Finally, uh, as he gets in the car, the dinosaur is there, and it flares out and spits at him. And
0: yeah, yeah,
1: that's it's a pretty great thing. jump scare. It's, I mm-hmm. wouldn't have necessarily thought of it, but. Spielberg was real good at the jump scare. He knew mm. he knows how to do a jump scare. And a couple more recent movies, the hand clap scene in The Conjuring from 2010. You've seen it in the trailer where Lily uh Lily Taylor's at the top of the basement stairs and she's like, Hello, and then the hand comes past her and claps. Okay. Um, the tall man and it follows, which I'm sure you haven't seen. But nope. <laughs> that one that one made me like jump out of my seat when I watched it. Okay. Um, and then we're gonna watch this will be the last one I actually show you because we need to wrap up. Um, <laughs> i hate this one too but this is my favorite one of all time so you know so it sounds like you've seen this so you know
0: it's cool. yes yes so this is the exorcist part three part three and we see a nurse in a red sweater walking down a hospital hallway she turns to the right she goes to her desk you see her. this is all like way in the fork in the back like Far away from the camera. Mm-hmm. She's doing her thing. She's getting her, I don't know, her fucking clipboards. Oh no, she's making a phone call. Oh no, she's, she's talking, talking to a, a guard. Yeah. Yeah. Dude's like, all right, cool. Peace. Where's he going? He's hanging out. Oh, he goes to sit down. She's, I don't know, again, she's still looking through her clipboards or something. She looks, and then it's a closer shot of her, and she looks. She's like looking up and out. She looks at a door. Mm -hmm. What isn't that door? She's is that her? And there's a little like screeching sound. Long shot of them in the hallway. We're gonna jump a little bit. She goes. What is she doing? She's looking. Security guard dude now leaves. I guess she's Mm -hmm. going and she's looking in that room. She opens it up. Toot, toot, nothing there. She goes in. She's investigating. Security guard comes back out, I guess. Security guard's like, okay, nothing here for me. So he leaves. (laughs) Nurse comes out. She shuts the door. She locks it. Oh! And then, uh, I don't know, (laughs) something in a white sheet or something comes out with what appears to be like, I don't know gardening shears or something. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, like like directly after her.
1: Yeah, and then a cuts off to her head. a statue, a picture of a statue with its head missing. Yes. Um which is like, you know, a nice hint. S- sy-
0: symbolism <laughs> symbol in case we weren't clear right. <laughs> on what was happening there
1: what i love about that scene and that's uh, but it's why i had to jump ahead because this is an audio podcast not visual. yeah is it takes for like it's so long and it's yeah. one shot just down the hallway yes and it's just like nurse on a night shift going about her thing but you can tell she's nervous she's hearing things the guard comes in and out yeah but it's all very like just mundane stuff, but you just know something's going to happen. Yeah. It kind of make you think it's going to be in that door that she goes to check out. And then mm-hmm. it comes from, you know, it's like a magician's trick where it's like, look over here. Nope. And then it comes from the other direction. Yeah. So there you go. Those are uh, some of the great, there's so many fucking jump scares, but those are just some of the ones that people talk about. And then I'll close out by just saying, I haven't watched this, but apparently there's been a new record set for jump scares in October really? of last year okay and in the show the midnight club created by our friend friend of the pod mike flanagan okay uh, who obviously he did uh netflix's haunting of hill house midnight mass things like that well he's got this new series the midnight club which is based on the novels of christopher pike it was released in october of last year and the first episode features 21 jump scares in a single episode like fantastic
0: (laughs) what where can you find this i want to watch it i love christopher pike
1: um, I believe it's on Netflix. I think it was his last yeah. Netflix thing before he, he's moving over to Amazon now.
0: Ooh, okay. Yeah. So there you go. There's
1: uh, the history of the jump scare. Just one Fantastic. of those like, we all know what a jump scare is, but I, I like the fact that like, it's one of those things that's sort of evolved over time.
0: Yeah, you know? absolutely. And again, I think one of the funnest things about doing this podcast is the thing that it's like, oh, I love that. Where the hell does it come from?
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: And then like going through and it's never just like, oh, somebody just like decided to do it one day. It's always like part of a much longer, Mm -hmm. like broader story. Right, right. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Um, I'm back to one of my, clearly one of my favorite topics for this podcast, (laughs) which is uh, interesting food stories. Mm. Um, So uh, I am, this is not necessarily a cold open but i'm just going to start with this so i'm gonna ask what do clam broth tv dinners spam and sardine egg canapes have in common wow i have no idea Yes, they were all at one time or another popular food trends. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Some of them like the clam broth, which I think was in the nineteen twenties, and sardine egg canapes, which I think was in like the sixties or seventies, came and went with mm-hmm. a relative, you know, whimper. Others uh have become permanent fixtures in the culture of food. David yeah. Sachs, who is the author of a book called Tastemakers, Why We're Crazy for Cupcakes But Fed Up with Fondue, <laughs> says Quote, think about extra virgin olive oil. With the gourmands, it hit big in the late 70s and early 80s, and it trickled down to everyone else in the 90s. Mm. It became the thing. Now it's not a trend. Nobody really talks about it, but it's the default oil. Mm -hmm. Food trends last a long time and are often good. I want to clarify here fads which burn bright and then fade into obscurity differ from trends which like zach says tend to become more permanent parts of food culture
1: so would like well i mean you'll probably get into it but would like the clam broth be more almost fatty because it seems like Sort of disappeared.
0: Yeah, except it was there for like a it was there for a bit. Like Goodness. apparently it was quite popular in the 1920s. I mean, that
1: seems like something to be popular in the 1920s. I don't know why. Just like,
0: let's go have some clam broth. Yeah, you know, I could yeah. I could stand a good cup of clam broth. Right. Um <laughs> yeah. So today I'm gonna talk about some of the most influential food trends of the last century and where they came from. Nice. The sources for this are food and wine, recipes.com, the recipe, bon appetit. Fast Company, Los Angeles Times, Entrepreneur Magazine, Better Homes and Gardens, and the CDC. Mm, right. Mhm. So our first food trend is quiche. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> uh, this is a pastry consisting of a crust filled with the savory custard of egg and cream, and usually includes either cheese, meat, seafood, vegetables, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. Quiche is considered a French dish, but egg and cream-filled pastries have appeared in English and Italian cookbooks since the 14th and 15th centuries.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay. The quiche exploded in popularity in the 1970s. A lot of people point to famed chef Julia Child as the reason for this, mm. she had included a recipe for quiche Lorraine, which is a quiche that has bacon in it, in her book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Mm. Prior to her book, quiche Lorraine wasn't really well known outside of the French region of lorraine until like that it was it like nobody really knew about it outside of lorraine until about the middle of the 20th century which is when julia Child so you said Keisha's it. like egg what like egg it's like oh, okay so it's a it's, you've got your pastry shell uh-huh. and then it's filled with a custard made of egg and cream
1: mm, that's <laughs> i'm just like i was like if if you didn't have that custard or that crust that that sounds like it'd be pretty keto friendly but
0: and you can absolutely find recipes for a crustless quiche mm. all over the internet probably do it with almond flour too anyway
1: moving okay
0: on. scotty's hungry <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm like, I, I clearly hungry. haven't eaten today <laughs> okay <laughs> sorry my bad this is not gonna be a comfortable episode for you okay so like i said not well known outside of the lorraine region mm-hmm. there's a champagne joke in there somewhere uh about it being a sparkling quiche Uh, Outside of the – but whatever. Um, (laughs) Okay. So Julia Child's cookbook was published in 1961 and she describes the dish as, quote, fancy but also fast and foolproof. Mm -hmm. Um, And quiches are like unbelievably easy to make and you can load them with whatever the hell you want to. My grandma Um,
1: used to make quiche all the time. I
0: love – I love I think
1: I always thought it was a Jewish thing just because I associated it so much with my grandma, but apparently not.
0: Interesting. No, yeah. it is, it is, like I said, it's considered to be a French dish, but there's probably a lot of cultures who have their version of it. Right. Uh, yeah. Much like, much like the dumpling. Right. Right. So, like I said, she said that it was fancy, but fast and foolproof. And mm-hmm. that might be why it showed up. It was huge in the seventies at dinner parties. Like you couldn't go to to a dinner party that didn't have a quiche on the table and that might have to do with the fact that like women were entering the workforce so they couldn't they didn't have the time to plan these like elaborate menus that took all day to cook right so it's just a thing you
1: can kind of whip up but it's like always going to be good
0: yeah and i honestly i will eat quiche when i'm not eating enough vegetables because Mm. quiche is a wonderful delivery way to get them vessel (laughs) <laughs> for me to eat my vegetables. Um, since the quiche gives an air of refinement, but is relatively quick and easy to make, plus it's sometime it's it's somewhat like shelf stable and it doesn't lose integrity by being eaten at room temperature or cold, it makes sense that you would find many a quiche on mm-hmm. many uh, 70s dinner table. Yeah. This is a quote from Food & Wine magazine. Quote, It officially reached millennials and their avocado toast levels of <laughs> pop culture saturation with the 1982 publication of the book, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, billed as a guide to all that is truly masculine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, is it gay to eat egg and <laughs> cheese? <Jeez. Jeez. laughs>
3: <Jeez.
0: laughs> um, <laughs> Plot twist about that particular book: the author, a guy by the name of Bruce Feirstein, also wrote the screenplays for *Golden and *Tomorrow Never Dies*. I,
1: I've met him. Okay, I knew I knew that title. That i he used to come and talk to our screenwriting class at BU. He was like the most like angry, bitter little, just like mm, my career well, didn't go where.
0: Maybe he should have eaten some quiche.
1: Yeah, right. Also, he's not, uh, he's going to be all mad if he hears this, but like (laughs) my memory of him is not someone I would have thought of being as like manly, you know, like not not in that like way I got, like the way I think he's trying to portray.
0: (laughs) Right. Like your sort of traditional textbook masculinity. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that he wrote these two James Bond screenplays, James Bond being sort of like the pinnacle of masculinity, right? Like nobody's questioning James Bond's, Bond's masculinity. But the funny thing is, is that he wrote these screenplays long after it had been established that James Bond not only eats quiche, but he knows how to make it. (laughs) There is a scene in 1985's A View to a Kill where Roger Moore's Bond makes a quiche and serves it to a sultry
1: blonde. Mm, Well, so yeah,
0: (laughs) and he like pulls it out of the oven and like presents it to her. And she's like, what is this? And he like kind of looks at her and he's like, an omelet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's, I almost I think
1: I remember that scene
0: actually. Yeah While it may not continue To be like a craze Quiche continues to be popular today mm-hmm. That seems Yeah that
1: definitely seems Like just a staple Like Yeah Not something that like Is ever going away
0: Yeah Yeah Shout out to Oh Now I can't do a shout out Because I'm not remembering I think I think actually The name of the place Is La Quiche And it's a little Parisian yeah. bakery Here in Albuquerque And they s- they sell little like single serving quiches. That's
1: right. That's right. We've fantastic. We've, you and yes. I have gone the lunch there
0: before. Yes. Yeah. It's a very good, very good place. Do not go there and ask for skim milk because they do not have it. <laughs> um,
1: and they'll let you know.
0: <laughs> full fat milk and butter only. Mm-hmm. Our next dish is fondue. Mm. Um, full disclosure. I don't have a ton of experience with fondue, but I feel like I'm fully on board With the Uh, idea of dipping anything into melted cheese. I've never
1: had it. And that seems like, like, how have I gone 45 years? Of all people, it seems like something I should have tried fondue at some point. Mm.
0: Yes, absolutely. So the earliest recipe for what we know as modern cheese fondue appeared in a 1699 book that was published in Zurich, and it's titled "Kasmet Weine zu koken," mm. and that is translated to "to cook with cheese and wine." <laughs> Mm -hmm. Traditional fondue is a Swiss dish of melted cheese and wine served in a communal pot over a portable stove. Bread is then dipped into the cheese using long-stemmed forks. The dish was promoted as the Swiss national dish by the Swiss Cheese Union in the (laughs) 1930s. And post-World War II, fondue became a symbol of Swiss unity. The dish was aggressively promoted with slogans like, Fondue creates a good mood."
1: <laughs> like not quite a bumper sticker slogan but it
0: know. probably sounds better in <laughs>
1: in, in German in like, or whatever.
0: Yeah, Swiss German or Swiss French or whatever the heck it is that they speak in uh in Switzerland. The dish became popular in the US in the 1960s. Fondue was served at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City and it was so popular that folks apparently mobbed the event's alpine restaurant for a chance to try it. Hmm the dish and its accompanying fondue parties started to get real popular after that.
1: I mean, I feel like there's some weird association, maybe this is just in my weird head of in pop culture of like fondue dishes with like swinger parties of the 60s and 70s.
0: I think the thing is is that like they came into which is okay.
1: Maybe it's just like dipping things in juice. I
0: here's here's This is the thing for me, though, right, is Mm -hmm. when you were talking about fondue, you were talking about dipping bread into melted cheese and wine. None of those things are like, none of that is a light meal.
1: No, that's true.
0: Nor is it something that is going to like smoothly pass through the digestive system, which makes it a hilarious (laughs) dish to serve at a party that will include sex. Yeah, And maybe. that's all I'm going to say about that. That's all I'm going to say about uh,
1: that. They were doing lots but of drugs back then.
0: I feel like this was also the time when, you know, now if you're buying somebody an appliance for like a, a wedding registry or something, it's like an air fryer or, mm-hmm. you know, like probably in the 80s and 90s, it was a crock pot. I think in the 60s and 70s, it was a fondue pot.
1: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, I mean, yeah. that's that feels like we, we need to like put together a fondue party at some point. Not, not a swinger party, but just like a fondue party. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I I've never tried it. I've never tried it. You need to
0: disassociate uh, fondue and sex. We could also go to the melting pot, which is a fondue restaurant.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: So allegedly a Swiss restaurateur in New York City invented fondue bourguignon in 1956. And that is where you, instead of a pot of melted cheese, it is a pot of hot oil and you dip pieces Mm -hmm. of meat into Mm. it to cook them. Um, That sounds good. Mm -hmm. He allegedly invented fondue bourguignon in 1956, and apparently he also went on to invent chocolate fondue as a promotion for Toblerone.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew that chocolate
0: fondue was a thing, so. Yes. That's cool. Um, Also, Toblerone's. Yeah. I like
1: so good. I like that it all just like go like I I wouldn't have necessarily thought of fondue as being this like very regional Swiss thing. That's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. A couple of fondue traditions. The person who loses their garnish, so whatever is on the end of their (laughs) fork. In the pot of fondue usually has to pay a penalty to the rest of the people in the party. So that's maybe if you're out to dinner at a fondue restaurant, you have to buy the next round of drinks. Or if you're at a fondue party at home, it means you have to clean up after the meal. Mm, um. After you have eaten all of the fondue, apparently the remaining bit of fondue creates a layer at the bottom of the pot and that cooks into a crust called a religieuse, I think is how you say it. And mm. that, that crusty, cheesy goodness is a reward for the table and is eaten at the end of the meal. I mean, yeah, don't fucking waste that cheese. My mom, so I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but Bolivians eat a lot of savory pastries. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Like I'm sure there are sweet pastries, but oh man, we love a savory pastry. And a lot of them have something to do with cheese. Mm-hmm. And one of them that my mom makes a lot is this thing called enrollado de queso. We call it rollo for short. And it is you basically take a square of dough, roll it out, or you take a piece of dough, roll it out into a rectangle, and you fill it with cheese. And here, it's red chili. Ooh. Then you, like, envelope it, bake it, slice it. Inevitably... Some of that cheese and chili will ooze out onto the baking sheet, and will get like crispy and melty. And everybody's like, "Give me it! Give me a get!" You, you can't. My dad is the. My dad will fight you for it. His own <laughs> children. Ridiculous.
1: Uh, your mom has made some good savory pastries for like receptions
0: for two hundred. Oh yeah. Snacks. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. It's. I mean, it's just like chef's mm-hmm. kiss. Yeah. Jello salad. Let's talk mm. about it. Jello, as we know it, was invented by a carpenter and cough syrup manufacturer named Pearl Bigsby Waite in Leroy, New York, 1897. Great name. Yes. I thought it was a woman. It is not. It is a man named Pearl. Yeah. Okay. Which was surprising to me. Even better. Um, yes. Uh, Waite and his wife, May added strawberry, raspberry, orange and lemon flavoring to granulated gelatin and sugar. Quick bit of history, gelatin is a protein produced from collagen extracted from boiled bones, connective tissue and other mm. animal products. It has been around since the 15th century.
1: That's why like I think it's associated with like people say like is made out of horse hooves or whatever.
0: Like, well the thing is is that like yeah it is and who cares?
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of stuff about food that people are like, do you know what's in it? And I'm like, you (laughs) cannot sit here and honestly say that it is less gross to eat the muscle of an animal than it is to eat the lips of an animal
1: right or the tongue, like,
0: or whatever. It, yeah it's just all of, and it feels very this is something that I've like dealt with a lot because I have grown up eating foods that are different from my like mm-hmm. American friends and I'm just like it's it's only strange to you like if you mm-hmm. were to go into any other country and be like oh I love to eat white bread slathered with marshmallow fluff and peanut butter people would be like that's disgusting mm-hmm. yeah Taste well, is it's relative like-
1: yeah, because there's a lot. I mean, same with like lots of Jewish foods, like people wrinkle their nose at. Mm-hmm. You know, like and there's chopped liver uh, and onions, which I love that stuff. You know,
0: cho- yeah. Cho- the thing is, is like chopped liver and onions is not really that far off from pate.
1: No, not really. It's so not at all. Yeah, like, it's all, yeah, it's all good. I, just, I remember being a kid and people being like, "Yeah, with Jello," because it's made, and it's like, like the Jello you buy at the grocery store probably it's all synthetic now anyway. Um, you know,
0: and again, honestly, like who cares?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm way less grossed <laughs> out at the concept of Jello than I am at just like the act of eating an orange. So
0: yes. Yeah and i will say here as we get into this before we get into this i'm gonna ask like i feel like let's talk respectfully about food and the people who may like it so Mm. i feel like it's absolutely let's go forward with a thing of like that does not sound like something that i would enjoy versus like a (laughs) type of reaction i mean i
1: will always have the reaction to fruit but that's i'm also very aware that that's me
0: yes (laughs) let's so let's not food shame anybody right um okay uh jello also i tried to find i tried to find this article so I could talk about it a little bit in here, but there's also a, a actually pretty deep Jewish history with Jello. Um, I like remember I said, that
1: I, very much in my family. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that like, yeah, I wish I, I, I tried to find the article. I follow an Instagram account called History Bakes mm. and she does a lot of like historical cooking. Usually it, they seem like it seems like most of it is from the 19th and 20th century, uh, but she had had a blog post about Jell-O's Jewish history, and I couldn't find the post. Mm-hmm. So there goes that. Okay, so Jell-O became a mainstream product due to refrigeration, machine oh, packaging, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, machine packaging, home economic classes, and the company's marketing strategies, right. which included marketing the product as America's most famous dessert long before it actually was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just, um just wish wish it into truth.
0: Like uh, this is
1: fake it till you make it or whatever.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of stuff where it's like world famous. And I'm like, really? how are you? <laughs> How are you calling it world famous? <laughs> uh, so Jell-O kind of took a, a page out of that book. In 1904, Jell-O's parent company, Genesee Pure Food Company, sent armies of salesmen into the field to hand out free Jell-O cookbooks. I also saw one source somewhere that says that they handed out Jell-O to immigrants arriving at Ellis Island. I could only find it in that one source. Very cool if uh, it's true. I, mean, I was going to say kind of tracks. Like, it seems like what they would do. Right. Another bit of food disclosure. I could do a whole episode about Jell-O's impact on American food, and I might still do that at some point. So Uh I'm not going to go into too many more details about Jell-O as a whole or the history and the development Uh and all that stuff, just in case I want to do that later. But in 1904, food visionary named Mrs. John E. Cook, her first name has been lost to history, submitted her recipe for perfection salad to the Better Home and Gardens Recipe Contest. Let's remember our thing about not food shaming. The <laughs> salad consisted of lemon vinaigrette flavored gelatin filled mm. with shredded cabbage, celery, and sweet red peppers served on lettuce or endive leaves with mayonnaise dressing. Mm-hmm. The recipe was noted as being quote a delicious accompaniment to cold sliced chicken or veal. In the 1930s, savory Jello salads became super popular, and recipes included tinned tuna, chicken, mm-hmm. or vegetables in lime or strawberry flavored Jello.
1: Mm-hmm. I see you. you're you're <laughs> you're doing the Lord's work of you know keeping.
0: <laughs> yep, I am a strong believer in not yucking someone's yum. This one is a hard pass
1: for me. No, I well, I'll say like as a Jew <laughs> who has been around jello salad off and mm-hmm. on throughout my life. Not my favorite. Not my favorite thing. Yeah. And I I think for me it's always like it's a it's a mix of con- like beyond like, you know, cause I don't, I don't tend to like jello cause a lot of it's fruit flavored, but like, I think I've been where at places where like they've had the tuna jello. Mm-hmm. It's like jello salad to me is just like a mix of consistencies that I that's have a the, hard time with.
0: That's the big thing for me too. And I do, I am, this isn't that I don't like mixing textures, but mm-hmm. i'm specific about the textures that i liked. that i like yeah. mixed yeah. like i i do not want i do not want nuts in a cake or brownies i huh. do not want them Interesting. Um, i strongly dislike pieces of chocolate and ice cream
1: Hmm. yeah because yeah, so i'm that, like 100 the opposite i love yeah
0: this. no yeah. i uh for me this is very much a texture thing now having said that i understand the thought process which is for a lot of people scotty excluded because he's got mm-hmm. his thing about fruit but right. for a lot of people the mixing of meat and fruit is very good. Oh, yeah
1: it's like i mean i always skip the cranberry sauce at thanksgiving but i know that i'm like the one person who does right that. Everyone right else loves that
0: right and there are a lot of you know it's very common to find like cherries or grapes served with mm-hmm. pork right. you know that that kind of a thing but yeah this this one is this one's a hard task yeah. for me yeah but uh, not my favorite <laughs> We can have By, we can
1: have a fondue party, but we'll we'll skip the jello salads. Yes.
0: By the nineteen fifties, savory jello salads had become so popular that Jell-O released celery Italian mixed vegetable and seasoned tomato flavor gelatin. These flavors have clearly been discontinued i
1: was gonna say i've <laughs> never seen those
0: <laughs> yeah uh jello salads like maybe the sweet version are still common at potlucks mm-hmm. today yeah the salad has quote a strong regional presence in utah and the surrounding states known as the mormon corridor to this day and Jell-O,
1: that's. i'm gonna have to ask my mormon friends about that if that's like Something they're familiar with.
0: Jello is the official state snack of Utah, and I have yeah. never heard anything more on brand in my entire yeah. life. 100%. 100%. 100% yeah. <laughs> big, 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 big among the Mormons. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just for every, anybody's edification, because this was a surprise to me, Jello salad is not the same thing as ambrosia salad. Ambrosia salad mm-hmm. is made with fruit, marshmallow, and coconut. Mm, okay. Mm, no gelatin in sight.
1: Yeah, I know there's also uh, something called aspic that I think is kind of aspic similar. is
0: like the precursor to these like savory jello salads. Okay. It is like meat and proteins and savory things suspended in gelatin. Okay. The thing about jello salads is that it was like lime jello, like fiber like, jello the, with yeah. like tuna and carrots. Right. They
1: they just they took the whole concept of aspect and just went wild with
0: it, and went nineteen fifties (laughs) futuristic man on the moon wild with it. Wine coolers and Alka Pops, Uh, Alka Pops. Okay, uh huh, Scotty, you. Might not have been aware of this as I was, but when I tell you the absolute fucking chokehold that wine coolers had on women in the 1980s, (laughs) I mean,
1: just... I remember them being around a lot.
0: I My parents always mm, had
1: them in the fridge. You know?
0: Precisely. I feel like there was a chunk during the 80s where women were not drinking. They weren't drinking wine. They weren't drinking beer. And they, they also, like, not to say, you know, universally. I don't want anybody writing me a letter and be, a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Post mail <laughs> uh, <laughs> to weirdest thing, <laughs> podcast headquarters. Um, P.O.
1: box, blah, blah. <laughs>
0: I'm sure that there were awesome women out there who were guzzling beer and, you know, were Mm -hmm. enjoying all of the wonderful 1980s wine that was coming out and, you know, were drinking old fashions and stuff. But in the pop culture, pop culture zeitgeist, wow, wine coolers Mm -hmm. really, really had a hold on people. I don't know what was going on socially that women didn't want to drink regular wine. (laughs) I was going to say maybe it had something to do with like the diet crazes that we're starting, but wine coolers have so much fruit juice and sugar in them. Yeah, I I don't know what was going on, I but feel like, wine coolers were everywhere.
1: I feel like in my family, like it was actually my dad was the one drinking the
0: wine coolers. I
1: think like my mom right. was my mom was drinking like the margaritas and pina coladas and stuff. But like, okay, I think my Fantastic. dad went through a period where he was like
0: Bartles and James sounds good. Every and it was like the flavors. Okay, <laughs> so in 1981, Michael Crete, who was a wine and beer sales dude, he decided to bottle his signature party cocktail, which was a mix of citrus juices, white wine, and club soda, and he, mm. had, he sold it under the name California Cooler. Mm. Um, the This particular party punch recipe is a slight variation of a wine spritzer, which I know were also really big for right. women okay. in the 1980s. So it sounds similar, yeah hmm And that a wine spritzer is usually wine club soda and a slice of lime or orange. Okay. So he, yeah. he was just like, just put the actual lime and orange in the punch. Mm, throw it in um, a bottle. And throw it in a bottle and every let's get sugar drunk. Um <laughs> Sales took off and the alcohol industry was like, go! Uh, (laughs) And the market got flooded with coolers of all brands. Uh, Mm. A fun fact, and I'll see if there's a way that I can post it in the stories. Seagram's had a commercial featuring a young and adorable Bruce Willis singing about how Seagram's coolers were wet and dry. I remember that commercial. He's on a porch and he's with like yep, a blues yep. band. Yeah. It's like peak Bruce Willis. Right. Um, Lovely to go back and watch it. By 1987, wine coolers accounted for 20% of all alcohol sales. Wow. Yeah. But in 1991, Congress quintupled the excise tax on wine. So wine cooler companies were like, what if we take out the wine and replace it with malt liquor? Uh, <laughs> yes, and this is where we get to Alka Pops. Okay, so Alka Pops took over while wine coolers went and nursed their hangover. By the way, so I know. yeah, so wine coolers are technically. Alka Pops, but the oh. early '90s saw a move away from like the Bartle and James style wine coolers to stuff like Zima, Mike's Hard Lemonade, okay, yes. Breezers, Schmirnoff Ice, and my high school drink of choice. Sorry, Mom, Jack Daniel's Country Coolers.
1: <laughs> I remember those. Those were popular when I was in college. Yeah.
0: Yes, uh, I have to give special thanks to the down home punch flavor of Jack Daniel's Country Coolers for getting me through many a high school and college. College, early college party without ever getting too drunk. The mm-hmm. thing about these Alka Pops is that they have a low alcohol content, like 3% or less.
1: I was going to say, I remember Zima was like n- nothing. And I like the equivalent today is like the hard seltzers and stuff, probably.
0: I'm going to talk about that. Okay. Okay. So Alka Pops were really popular with underage drinkers. See. <laughs> of course. <laughs> see above because they were basically odorless. Yeah. Yeah. So, You wouldn't come home smelling like beer or vodka or whiskey. Zima was even rumored to not set off a breathalyzer. And Zima's parent company, Coors, had to actually release statements and send out letters to police chiefs and school officials that were like, that is fucking false. Like, that is (laughs) not true. It will... like, we are not trying to enable underage drinking. I,
1: yeah, I feel like I remember people in high school talking about Zima, like, oh, yeah, if you get pulled over with a Zima, they can't take your or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's 100% all untrue. Lies. All lies. Absolutely <laughs> untrue. Uh, and Coors was like, no, n- no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> according to Food and Wine Magazine, hard seltzer sales threatened to overtake those of beer and wine in the early 2020s. But to be fair, we were all going through a lot. Mm. End quote. (laughs) i love that that's a quote (laughs) yes um basically what we're dealing with there is so you've got these alka pops and then you have hard seltzers which are dealing with like flavored alcoholic seltzer water Uh and then you have ciders like hard ciders and hard ciders and hard seltzers are technically different things they are not under the umbrella of alka pops
1: Okay. Interesting. I started drinking the hard seltzers when I was first doing keto. But the problem for me is that it's really hard to find the ones that are not fruit flavored. Like there was a while that White Claw had something that was like kind of a, just sort of a club soda flavored one. And
0: I can't can't find those. Yeah. And I mean, I feel about hard seltzers the way that I do about flavored sparkling waters, which is, Mm -hmm. it smells like it like they taste like somebody was eating Starbursts and like burped in the other room. Yeah, it's like such a hint, and I'm like they. It's I don't. I I've tried and I can't.
1: Well, and I can actually like I can, I don't like fruit flavored drinks, but I can generally usually stomach like even the fruit flavored uh, White Claws because it is such a like light hint of a flavor. Yeah. Um. But yeah, they're not. I mean. You know, as a longtime whiskey drinker, I'm never going to be like in love with the idea of drinking.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly, I usually get. Like, um, they're usually, like, you can find them in, like, the Latin American foods out, but there are companies that sell, like, nectar, which is, like, a juice that is, like, I'm sorry, Scotty, it's, like, a little bit thicker. It's a bit more Mm. viscous. So I will grab those and top off a seltzer with some of that because. That makes sense. It just, sparkling waters and seltzers just taste, like, static. Seltzers,
1: for me, were, like, when I was, like, you know, doing keto and, like, I really wanted a beer, but, like, beer is all carbs so it's like well you, can know, you do like carbonated hard... you know
0: <laughs> can you do hard alcohol on
1: um keto? i don't i don't know that you're really supposed to but like i've read that the brown liquors and and also i think vodka because it just don't really have sugar in them that like like you gotta stay away from rum and things like that wine mm-hmm. stay okay. away from wine Beer, but like i still drink whiskey even doing keto but i'm also like not a super heavy drinker anymore so, right
0: right know. okay Molten chocolate cake, mm. also known as chocolate lava cake. This is a chocolate cake with a liquid chocolate core, not to be confused with chocolate fondant, which is a recipe that has a lot of chocolate and butter and very little flour. So that chocolate fondant melts on the palate, not on the plate.
1: I should clarify that my grunt there was not me food shaming. It was me
0: wanting. No. <laughs> like... Yeah, I could tell via, via visually that this was like a Fuck, chocolate. I know, chocolate.
1: because that's you're talking about all the things I can't eat
0: right now. I'm so. <laughs> very sorry. I'll get you some cold jello salad in just a moment. Um, okay. Apparently, the origin of this dessert is up for debate. A French chef named Michel Braz claims he invented the cake in 1981 after two years of experimentation, inspired by his family warming themselves up with hot chocolate after skiing. Mm-hmm. Another chef by the name of Jean-Georges von says he invented the dish in in, uh, New York City in 1987 Mm. after pulling a chocolate sponge cake from the oven before it was done and finding the center still runny but warm and yummy. Mm. Jean-Georges has been credited with popularizing the dessert, which became an almost like de rigueur inclusion on high-end restaurant dessert menus in the 1990s. It should be noted that the two chefs go about creating the molten center differently. Roz's recipe calls for covering a frozen chocolate ganache core with a rice starch batter. Mm. The cake is baked in a mold. Jean-Georges' recipe is chocolate cake batter baked briefly in a very hot oven. Both recipes are popular, but Michel's is easier to produce. It should also Mm. be noted that in the movie Chef, which is one of my favorite, favorite movies. Chef Carl Casper, played by Jean Favreau, irately explains to food critic (laughs) Ramsey Michael, played by Oliver Platt, that lava cake is not just undercooked chocolate cake, but is in fact achieved by surrounding a frozen ball of ganache with batter so that as the cake cooks, the ganache melts resulting in an ooey gooey center case closed in my opinion that Mm -hmm. is the official molten chocolate lava cake recipe
1: yeah man Uh, that that was i mean you're right that that was big in the 90s because it was
0: everywhere
1: i feel like you don't see it as much anymore but like man i loved i loved me a good molten chocolate cake
0: i think that right now i bet we will come back around to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But I think it was one of those things that it was so everywhere mm-hmm. that people were like, it's not, it's not like fancy anymore. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, every exactly. restaurant has had I could say that. A molten chocolate cake on it. So it's not special. Right. Snapple.
1: Oh man. Forgot about Snapple.
0: Snapple. Like if I was not drinking Jack Daniel's country coolers in high school. <laughs> you were drinking Snapple? I was drinking Snapple. <laughs> like, the again, the chokehold that Snapple had on people throughout the 90s.
1: Everybody, I mean, I don't think I was really drinking it, but everybody was drinking Snapple.
0: Everybody was drinking Snapple. With wacky flavor names like Ralph's Cantaloupe Cocktail or Kiwi Tiwi, along with some like absolutely ridiculous marketing campaigns. Do you remember Wendy, the Snapple lady? Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. We'll
0: we'll come back to her. Um, The beverage became insanely popular. Additionally, they also marketed it with their slogan of made from the best stuff on earth. And it came in these durable glass bottles. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the nineties was drinking Snapple.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Their caps also made a really satisfying popping sound yep, when you opened that. them. And each cap also had a randomly numbered numbered real fact on the inside. Oh, uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Many of the facts have been disputed as being outdated, <laughs> incorrect, or exaggerated, but it was good fun nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, Wendy the Snapple lady was an actual Snapple employee mm. who was plucked from her customer service desk job to answer fan mail on camera. Mm-hmm. In addition to Wendy, Snapple created ads that spoofed beer and sports drinks to counteract the Coke and Pepsi challenge commercials. Um, One of my most favorite commercials ever. It was a whole campaign that they did, and I have not been able to find them on YouTube. I don't know if they were like, these are problematic. (laughs) But it was a whole thing about basically bad fruits being rehabilitated so they could go on in to be Snapple. (laughs) And it had people... And I don't know if they used little people or if they used children, but it was, they were short in stature Mm, in like, like Apple, like mascots.
1: uh, I remember these. They probably are like
0: problematic
1: now. (laughs) I I do kind of remember those.
0: Yeah. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, they didn't have arms. So it was just the legs. Mm, So they were constantly like running into each other. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about some Snapple controversies. Okay. In 2009, Snapple was sued for the alleged unhealthy amounts of high fructose corn syrup, Mm. which- Honestly, no wonder they tasted so good. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that language used on the bottles really did make it seem like Snapple was a healthy drink.
1: Yeah. And if it's like yeah. all high fructose corn syrup, that's.
0: Yeah. That's I mean, even if it was real honest appetizer. to God, sugar, it was like, right. this is This is just
1: punch. I don't um, remember anyone actually thinking it was a health
0: drink. I remember that it was like, it was like, well, should I get a Coke or a Snapple? And it was like, well, I'm trying to be it, so I'm going to get a Snapple. Like, we were done.
1: Oh, wow. I don't remember. You that.
0: know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I absolutely remember. That I do not understand how the hell we thought drinking something a strawberry kiwi fruit drink was good for it, it doesn't matter we yeah. we were in a weird place it was a weird time in the early nineties the label for their iced tea flavor depicted the Boston Tea Party but there were some dum dums who started being like that's not the Boston Tea Party those are slave trader ships oh and it took off people rem- were like their slave ships that. on Snapple bottles. Additionally, some other dum-dums started saying that Snapple was like involved with the clan or like a clan business wow, or like clan okay. fans i'm not really sure but folks kept pointing on the label there was a small k inside of a circle and people were like clan mm-hmm, clan 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 that's some that's, like
1: QAnon level here's bullshit. here's
0: the thing <laughs> that k in a circle was actually a way of conveying that the product was kosher all three <laughs> founding members of snapple are you guessed it Jewish.
1: Yeah. okay yeah no yeah. that i i don't remember that but that sure sounds like that sure sounds like some confirmation yeah. biasy fucking conspiracy
0: yeah bullshit. somewhere along i don't remember I think...
1: the slave ships
0: thing i, I remember yeah. that. i remember that yeah. yeah no and I, like the interesting thing is that snapple was like we're not gonna like both of those things are down we're not responding hmm. and they didn't respond and they didn't respond and it became so big that they actually were like fuck And they actually had to come out and address the rumors and be like, "It's not a slave ship. It's the Boston Tea Party. Here's the like the artwork or whatever that we got it from. And the K stands for Kosher, guys. Like (laughs) we're a big old Jewish company, bunch of Jews. Like, (laughs) yeah, like, (laughs) yeah. So yeah, Yeah. I don't exactly. Maybe it was the thing of being like, what's actually in the stuff that we're drinking and like. You know, the discussions around high fructose corn syrup and people starting to be like, maybe you shouldn't drink your calories, blah, blah, blah. But Snapple kind of, it's still around. You can still find it. It is now, it's
1: not a huge, it's
0: now, yeah, it's now in plastic bottles instead of glass, which I'm not sure which is better for the environment, actually. Yeah. Um, But they're now, it's now in plastic bottles, but it's still around. You can still find it. Mm. Uh, It just, you know, petered out. And it's sort of, like I've said, pop culture zeitgeist.
1: Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a Snapple, but it's because they were mostly fruit flavored. I mean, They're I so do remember Snapple's that they so had, good. I remember they had the iced tea flavor, but I don't think I ever tried it.
0: So good. In the book Wild, I think mm-hmm. that's the book, the Cheryl Strade book, Wild, where she, it's a like a memoir of her hiking the right yeah Pacific Coast Trail.
1: Yeah, Reese Witherspoon is um, in the movie,
0: right? Yeah, she talks at length about how, you know, because with that, you hike and hike and hike and hike, and hike. And then you get to these towns that are sort of like pit stops for people on the, Mm -hmm. on the Pacific crest trail. That's what it is. Pacific crest Mm -hmm. trail and how she would go to these places. And she had people who were mailing her packages of like money or like supplies that she would run out of on the trail. And she would take that money. And she like the biggest thing she wanted was a cheeseburger and a Snapple lemonade. Mm. And reading that book, I was like, "Fuck, I need a Snapple lemonade." (laughs) dippin dots oh
1: yes i remember
0: yeah dippin dots were invented in 1988 by kurt jones i really really thought that dippin dots were from like the 50s and 60s like space exploration Say,
1: it seems like at least like a 70s thing but
0: yeah no late 1980s
1: okay
0: right but like it feels like it should have been developed around the time of like tang. Right. And that kind yeah, of stuff. it has that kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, dip and dots, little balls of ice cream flash freezed in liquid nitrogen that uh, must be stored at temperatures below negative 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. Dip and dots cannot be sold in grocery stores since most stores can't meet the needed extreme cooling measures. That's why you saw dip and right. dots at like fairs. Or in the mall, I remember um, that kind of stuff. Every
1: time we went to like a museum, Mm -hmm. it was always like the cafeteria would always sell Dippin' Dots,
0: and like they're popular. I
1: think at baseball games, you get them in like a little baseball helmet.
0: (sighs) Those stupid mini (laughs) baseball helmet Sundays, (laughs) the hold they had on me, the hold they had on me. So the company went bankrupt in 2011, Mm. and uh, after that happened, a subsidiary company called Dippin' Dot DD, uh, Cryogenics LLC was established in 2019. Mm. DD Cryogenics, they created ultra-low temperature freezing for their own food products, as well as their ultra-low temperature freezers, which went as low as negative 122 degrees. The creation of those sparked interest when the COVID vaccines were developed and needed to be stored at temperatures of negative oh. 94 degrees.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: So, pharmacies and vaccine distributors reached out to Dip and Dots and were like, Yo, can we get some of those Dip and Dot freezers? You so never I know believe... where
1: progress will happen. You know?
0: Precisely. <laughs> uh, kind of cool to think that we owe COVID vaccines to Dip and Dots and Dolly Parton. <laughs> That's
1: cool. Tail. <laughs> uh, <kale. laughs> Wait. What say again? Kale. Uh, That is our next food item. (laughs) Trying real hard not to make the food shamey face. Okay, continue.
0: As am I. Kale is a variety of cabbage that has been around since at least the fourth century BC. It's a cabbage? Uh huh. Ancient Romans were like, yeah. Kale, you know, like they were doing their (laughs) thing. Prior to the mid-late aughts, kale was mostly seen as a garnish. As Mm -hmm. a matter of fact, Pizza Hut was one of the U.S.'s largest buyers of kale, and they used it to decorate their salad bars. Uh, Interesting. Mm -hmm. It was not eaten. It was a garnish. Mm -hmm. Enter a woman named Oberon Sinclair. Okay. It's a great, possibly another great name. yeah possibly one of the coolest names I've ever heard yeah she is CEO and founder of the PR branding and creative agency my young auntie the American kale Association hired Sinclair to grow the vegetables brand okay. uh so she started pitching kale to her friends her former and current clients in the restaurant industry and boom. Soon, New York hotspots like the Fat Radish had kale-centric dishes on their menus, and people were Instagramming the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. Farm production of kale rose 60% between 2007 and 2012. That's what's known as peak kale era.
1: Well, I I remember them being all like about the Obamas and the kale at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh The vegetable was everywhere. They were juicing it. People were baking it. They were sauteing it. They were turning it into chips. You could not find a salad that didn't have kale on it or in yeah. it. Uh, bon Appetit magazine declared 2012 the year of kale. Dr. Oz started peddling it. Beyonce wore a kale sweatshirt in her uh, 7-Eleven video. By 2014, Whole Foods, who used to barely Carry the leafy green. We're now selling twenty-two thousand bunches of kale wow. a day. Yeah, wow. everyone was I touting feel like, "That's
1: g- half their produce rack is kale."
0: There's a lot of kale. Everyone was touting the health benefits of kale. It was named a superfood. To to clarify, a superfood is a food that has super health benefits based on its exceptional nutrient density. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Right? Kale is super good for you. And now it's everywhere and in everything. It's like super accessible. The American Kale Association, you know, like succeeded, and we're all on our way to becoming our most beautiful, healthiest versions of ourselves. Right? Sure. Right. <laughs> Except for one thing mm-hmm. the American Kale Association was com- the completely made up invention of one Oberon Sinclair.
1: And in, ok, interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and the fat radish, that restaurant that I, I talked about, mm-hmm. that restaurant was like the restaurant that was early on it, like in early on the kale game, they were a client of my young auntie, Sinclair's firm,
1: so this is like fairly invented.
0: Mm -hmm. In an article in Entrepreneur Magazine, Sinclair says, quote, we put kale on the menu at the Fat Radish and I started placing it around me. And for me, it was just really fun to try to do this guerrilla marketing campaign to see if I could prove to myself, to see if I could do something that was interesting. And it worked. It just ripple affected. Mm -hmm.
1: So Mm -hmm. it was just kind of. See, like let's take a food that literally tastes like the ground and see if we can market it to
0: everybody. And get and get everybody to eat it. Yeah. The American Kale Association, the brainchild of Sinclair, even had popular Facebook and Twitter pages. But the National Farmers Union, the Fresh Produce Association and other kale farmers were like, I'm sorry, the American what the association? <laughs> yes. And they denied the existence of any official kale lobbying group. In 2015, Sinclair finally admitted that the American Kale Association was completely made up as part of her marketing campaign. Interesting. Here is the rub for all of those people who ate and continued to eat bushels of kale because it's reportedly so good for you. A 2014 peer-reviewed study by the CDC that ranked vegetables by nutrient density ranked kale as 15th. Coming way behind mm. watercress, which is number one, spinach, number five, and regular old romaine lettuce, number nine. Interesting. Because I always think
1: of romaine lettuce as being like nothing in it, but I guess not.
0: Yeah. The reason that you think that is because of Sinclair, Oberon Sinclair. (laughs) Like really, really and truly. Um, So the good news is, is that you can finally put down that carpet fiber green, which is what I, I feel like eating kale is like eating carpet fibers. Yeah. I do not like it. You can put it down and just eat some fucking spinach or some watercress or some regular old leaf lettuce mm-hmm. or chives or parsley, mm-hmm. all of which are more nutrient dense than, than kale. kale.
1: That's interesting because I yeah, that is how kale has been so And I have tried kale because I generally like vegetables and I was like, oh, I'd probably like it. No, nope. I mean, I just feel like every time bite of kale makes my face want to like in on itself like.
0: i have tried countless iterations of kale i have tried it braised sautéed massaged and i'm like this is awful
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. well because it's just in the end of the day it just tastes like i don't know pennies or something like it's just so bitter
0: yeah and the good news is of course that kale isn't bad
1: for you so no. if you like and if you it, like it do do your thing
0: Right. Absolutely keep eating it. But if you have been forcing it down because it's allegedly a superior superfood, you can you relax can, and you, you can, can find a green, down. yeah, that is more your speed. Yeah. And I mean, who's going to complain about spinach? I mean, I guess Sp- people
1: like well, children do, I guess. But like
0: Right. <laughs> but for me, I'm like, "Oh, watercress is better for I love I love water. watercress. Yeah. I love watercress Um, um, it is fantastic i will gladly make a spinach and watercress salad and eat it all day long yeah this is an to me the story about kale is interesting because it's proof that when something becomes big you should take a second to be like but why is it big
1: yeah what's what's happening
0: here yeah and like where are we actually getting especially when you were talking about things like superfoods if you were mm-hmm. interested you can find it you can google 2014 cdc nutrition density study and you can mm-hmm. find it on there and the lists are in there it tells you yeah. all it tells you like the top 100 nutrient dense foods so, so
1: it's 15 you said it's
0: 15
1: so it's up there but it's yeah a lot easier things to eat than
0: a Interesting thing too, broccoli and cauliflower, which are other dishes that have become very – people are like broccoli, 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 broccoli. And cauliflower, which has become a huge substitute for people uh, who are doing low-carb diets, mm-hmm. significantly lower on that scale than kale is. Yeah. So just understand like – There's – the idea of a superfood, you honestly should probably look to vegetables that you might be overlooking because they are not – (laughs)
1: lettuce. They are not difficult to eat. Right. Yeah. And like – yeah, I mean the big advantage uh, for like cauliflower for me is just you can make crusts and stuff out of it. Yes. That's not where the nutrition comes from. And I actually – I like broccoli. I like the like – you know, just like good crispy texture of it, but (laughs) –
0: I have, I have, I have a a tumultuous relationship with broccoli. Mm-hmm. We'll get into you're, it offline.
1: You're not, I mean, because like, I mean, I, I have my thing about fruit. I don't think you're quite the same with vegetables, but you're not a big fan of vegetables, right?
0: That is, I think, I think it's not that I'm not a big fan of them. It is that it is part of it is a cultural thing in mm-hmm. that the vegetables that are very big in this country are not necessarily the vegetables that were found in Bolivian cooking, which is what I ate growing up. Now, the flip side to that is, and it's very cool to see the sort of intersectionality of dietitians that are coming out, is that there are tons of vegetables in Latin American cooking. They just don't show up as a side of Brussels sprouts. They show up in salsas. That mm-hmm. you're eating, they're showing up in the like the base of dishes. So you're you know, getting celery, them, but you're just onions, not, carrots. You're not like you're munching
1: just... on a broccoli. Like, it's not. The yes.
0: Same. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Okay. Speaking of which, moving right into my last food item, avocado toast. Mm. If you Google avocado toast, you get roughly 78 million results. Wow. Many, many of which are recipes, which is hilarious to me because a recipe for avocado toast to me is a little like asking for, well, it's a little like asking for a recipe for a bowl of cereal or a toaster strudel. Right. Like it's like, you just put it on the, on the uh, thing. And then that's the, the, you're done. Yeah, you're done. Uh, an Australian named Bill Granger says that he invented avocado toast in 1993. Gwyneth Paltrow has been credited with bringing avocado toast into the spotlight when she included a recipe for it in her 2013 cookbook. It's all good. Mm. Uh, The dish became a social media favorite, and it was a huge part of the clean living movement. You could find it on cafe menus, and everyone Mm. from the Food Network to Cooking Light to the New York Times Cooking have published avocado toast recipes from wikipedia quote following avocado toast's elevation to trend status to trend status the act of ordering avocado toast at a cafe was criticized as a symbol of frivolous spending Mm -hmm. and its popularity has been blamed for the rising cost of avocados so let's get into the truth of it Okay. Avocados are a native fruit to the Americas, mm-hmm. probably originating in central Mexico. Avocados have been cultivated and eaten by pre-Columbian civilizations for nearly 9000 years. Eating avocado on bread has been happening since humans began eating bread and avocados. Yeah. Before any documented or written history. It is such a staple in diets throughout the Americas and when I say the Americas what I mean is Mexico, Central and South America mm-hmm. that there is no documentation of it because there was no need to document such a simple basic meal. For the civilizations that have been eating avocado toast for generations, it's literally like asking someone for their recipe for toast with butter or jam. Years ago, a friend mentioned to me that she had been chatting with her sister and commented on how wonderful her sister's skin looked. The sister replied that it was due to this new meal she'd recently discovered, (laughs) avocado toast. And my friend asked if I had ever heard of it. I was super confused because I do not remember not eating avocado toast. Mm. I am not trying to get all hipster about it, (laughs) but this- it's funny to me because this is a food that my mother would put in front of me for breakfast because it's literally the easiest thing to make.
1: Well, and also I mean, yeah, and you are believing. Like I'm sure it's it's it wasn't some hipster Brooklyn discovery. Like
0: No, no. And like it there is, you know, there is a like it yeah. is a it is a again, it is it is toast. It is yeah. toast with jam throughout latin america
1: right um i mean to me the whole avocado because i love avocados but like the avocado toast thing for me is weird and I, this is probably a cultural thing too being jewish is it's just like why would you put avocados on your toast when you could put cream cheese on your toast but that's because jews we like to put cream cheese on everything.
0: <laughs> but the interesting thing about it right is that what you have with cream cheese and it's the same thing that you get with avocados it's just a different delivery method is a good amount of fat and protein which is the- super
1: filling and they're both good fats. They're healthy fats. Exactly. So like, yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, like because I've had avocado toast and like I like it was one of those things where I was kinda like, huh, that's an interesting combination, not knowing the history of mm-hmm. it. And then I've had mm-hmm. it and I'm like, oh yeah, that works. You it's, know? it's not what I would like go out of my way to eat, but avocado I don't mind, toast I don't mind a good avocado toast.
0: Yeah, avocado toast is one of my favorite like summer breakfasts because mm. It's a relatively it's a cool food, yeah. you know what I mean, uh, or it's not, or rather, it's not a hot food. Yeah, um, popular popular recipes for avocado toast include mashed avocado with salt, pepper, maybe some lemon or lime juice, and added ingredients like olive oil, hummus, red pepper flakes, feta, or tomatoes. That sounds pretty good. Variations include replacing the toast with slices of roasted sweet potato. Avocado, avocado and Vegemite toast, French toast with avocado and parmesan, huh. avocado toast fingers with soft boiled eggs avocado and baked beans on toast avocado avocado and feta on toasted rye and smashed avocados soft-boiled scrambled or fried eggs and hot sauce on toast
1: that all sounds I mean I can't <laughs> I can't do the toast right now but everything else about that stuff sounds really good
0: in 2016 Bernard salt wrote in the Australian that he had seen quote young people order smashed avocado with crumbled feta on grain toasted bread for $22 a pop and more and that they should be saving for a house instead. In 2017, I 30, that. 35-year-old property developer Tim Gurner grumbled that millennials should forgo their avocado toast and $4 lattes in pursuit of home ownership. Mm-hmm. At this point, somebody was like, hold on. And did the math and they were like, if I was to forego my avocado toast, I would have to save, I would have to save at minimum for 10 years before I would be able to make the down payment on a home, let alone afford
1: a home. Like how much, like, it's not that. I mean, I'm sure you can go to some, like, ridiculously overpriced restaurant and, like, yeah, your avocado toast is going to be $30. But, like, that is not a combination of foods that is, like, prohibitively
0: expensive.
1: No. Like, toast and avocados are, like, maybe a little bit expensive, but they're
0: not. I will say that the trend of avocado toast, and I think we can all point to Gwyneth Paltrow for this, Uh meant that everybody wanted it on their menus, which meant that the demand for avocados rose. Sure. Avocados – like anything that you're talking about being sort of industrially farmed. It's also not great for the environment. But I guess, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I
1: guess being in New Mexico, I always assumed avocados would be on the menu because <laughs> it's like everything here. Yes. It's not hard to get avocados on things
0: here. Yes. For what it's worth, I'm going to give you my official recipe for avocado toast. You take okay. one ripe avocado you mash it with salt to taste you spread it on any bread type thing you have it is really and lovely you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really lovely with like a good crusty bread it's also perfectly delicious on toasted sandwich bread boom authentic avocado toast in your own home me and my people uh-huh. tend to side eye recipes for this because it should be smashed avocado and salt I think that adding red pepper flakes, lime or lemon juice, all this stuff. I am not interested in eating guacamole on toast. And guacamole I Guacamole
1: like, is like, that's a different. You need chips. That's
0: it. Yeah. But to me, I'm like, when you start adding, like when you start Bunch trying to. Yeah. To it, then you're getting into guacamole and it's perfectly good on its own. You don't need the feta. You don't need the eggs. It's a perfectly I mean, like rounded breakfast. By itself,
1: I mean, I will say I'm a fan of like hard chopped hard boiled eggs and avocado. That's mm-hmm. how I make.
0: I know them. you are because that's how you make your guacamole. That's how I
1: make my guacamole. Um, but like <laughs> one thing I will, and and actually, the feta to me
0: sounds pretty good with guacamole I think it all sounds avocado. good. You just don't. But I'm it. just like precisely. It's gilding um, the
1: lily. Yeah, but I mean, but I'm also like, but again, like. Do what you want. Like if you like, if you like feta with your avocado toast, throw it on there. If you
0: want to, you know, throw a fried egg on there with a a Valentina or sriracha, Mm -hmm. go to town. Have at it. Uh, I'm gonna wrap this whole thing up with some predicted food trends for 2023. These were a couple of things that I found. I did not know this every year. All of the food publications come out with their predicted food trends for the for the coming year. Okay. These were the couple that I found on multiple sites. Easy breezy cocktails from the 70s and 80s. This is stuff like the Harvey Wallbanger, the Salty mm. Dog, and the Lemon Drop. This is a move away from the serious craft cocktails that have become so popular in okay. the last couple of years.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to like that trend. I like the craft
0: cocktails. I do too. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. you know what happens there. Also predicted is a tinned fish revolution beyond tuna. So this is sardines, anchovies, mackerel, that kind of stuff.
1: So that's like that's some some Jewish fucking. It's also it's coming also, into pop culture. There,
0: it's also very very Mediterranean. Yeah. That's all the countries along the Adriatic, yeah. uh, Spain, like um, Italy, all of those are big tinned fish. And I'm, these are usually fish that are packaged in oil rather yeah, than water. I'm I'm a huge fan of, I mean, sardines is one of my favorite things. Sardines and like saltine crackers, that's a meal. That's um, that's a full meal. Yeah, full meal. Plant-based pastas. So mm. we moved away from wheat-based pastas, and then we also got into like zoodles. You know, mm-hmm. like noodles made from zucchini. Right. And now it looks like what might be coming are plant-based pastas. And these are, po- these are going to be noodles. Now, I don't mean – when I say spaghetti squash, I don't mean that you – a spaghetti squash and use that as the noodles. I mean noodles made from spaghetti squash. Right. Hearts of palm and green bananas. Nostalgic eats childhood favorites with a wellness focused twist. So this is like whole food mac and cheese okay. uh, or pizza bites or prebiotic sodas, etc. Okay. Dates. Dates are allegedly going to have a moment in 2023. Um Dates are an old world crop. Mm-hmm. Like they have literally been around. I mean, they like in the Bible <laughs> Yes, exactly. They are showing up more and more in commercial products. And as a staple ingredient, you can now find like date sugar and stuff mm-hmm. like that in most like whole food markets and stuff like that. I think dates are interesting because I think dates actually are a superfood. They are high in fructose, uh-huh. but they're also really high in calcium and they're really high in fiber if you have trouble staying regular eat three days a day yeah Eat three dates a day and you will be golden. Throw in some figs and you'll never have any problems ever again. A couple of dates and a banana are an excellent pre-workout snack. Like they are so much better than your pre-workout drink mixes and stuff. I promise. Mm -hmm. Potassium, fiber, calcium, sugar, like you're good to go. Additionally, if you have not had devils on horseback, (laughs) devils on horseback were a very popular like 1950s, 1960s, like hostess appetizer. And they are dates stuffed with blue cheese or goat cheese and wrapped in bacon and baked. They are...
1: That sounds good.
0: Like, they are ridiculously good. Like, they are like, eat a whole platter. See,
1: that sounds good because, like, I don't like dates kind of on their own and i think it's because they're just sort of like too sweet almost but like but like cutting it with the savory stuff like that like that sounds like the right balance
0: they're so good when when we started this recording as a matter of fact and i was like can you hear me chewing i was eating three dates (laughs) i was eating i was eating my daily dates (laughs) um so there we go so that's some food trends of history and uh to come i don't know why like why can't
1: beets have like why can't they be part of like an upcoming food trend i love beets
0: here's the thing about beets beets i think like cilantro are one of those things that there are people who either like them or they don't Do and the not. people and the people who dislike beets is because they're like they taste like dirt
1: mm-hmm. yeah I've, now, heard that. I've heard people I, say cilantro tastes like soap which soap yeah
0: I mentioned that to my parents when uh, we were at a restaurant here. Shout out to the Artichoke Cafe who's been consistently good for decades. Mm-hmm. Um but they have a they had a dish for a while like a seasonal dish that was it was roasted beets, farro, which is I think farro's I think farro is an ancient grain. Yeah. Farro's amazing. It's so yeah. good. But it was beets, goat cheese and black sesame seeds. That sounds good. It was so good. And we were like, we were eating and we were like, this is so good. And I said, it's amazing to me that some, like there are people who don't like beets because they, they say they taste like dirt. And my mom looked at me and she goes, they do taste like dirt. That's <laughs> why they're good. And I was like, <laughs> okay, we can't argue there with that. Uh, Whole Foods also does a golden beet arugula and Parmesan salad that is Ooh, to die for. Good very good
1: no that's that's interesting it's interesting thinking about the like the fighting over i don't know if it's fighting but the like the poo-pooing of like the avocado toast people because it seems like that's like i remember like that was kale just a few years before that because it was the whole like ooh like michelle obama's growing kale you know just like there's a thing of like anything like the young hip people do someone has to just like Shit on?
0: Yeah. And um, I think, I think there are always going to be people, whether it is food or movies or fashion, like anything that becomes a trend, it's always going to be popular to produce or publish the hot take about right. why whatever that thing is, is actually not really that good. However, it's all cyclical. I'm sure there were mm-hmm. people who were like, You expect me to eat melted cheese on bread as like, a meal you know there i'm sure there were people that were like i am not down with these jello salads Mm -hmm. i think at the end of the day much like with the thing with kale if you like it eat it fucking do it yeah if you are forcing yourself to eat it because it is fashionable or because it is allegedly super good for you and you were like forcing it down you don't have to i mean kale you you know because
1: there are things you know so back to like me being like i like Chopped liver and onions, yeah. Um, like that's one of my favorite foods. I'm also very aware that like that's a very distinct flavor, yeah. Like, and it's a strong; it's not a mild flavor. And mm-hmm. that's kind of how I feel about kale. Where it's it's like I can understand why, like some people like it's part of their palate. It's just super not part of
0: mine. Yeah, it's not mine. But again, you know, like that's the thing too is that I also I grew up eating. Bone marrow, mm-hmm. you know, we, we call it tuetano. and I grew up eating it. My mom makes a soup called puchero, and you, you you put the soup bones in there with the marrow, and you scoop the bones out, scoop the marrow out, and spread it on toast with some salt. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, I um, love bone marrow, delicious yeah. beefy butter is what it tastes like. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I remember talking about it when I was in. I mean, up to being in college and people were like that's disgusting and then bone marrow hit the food scene and now right. you can find bone roasted bone marrow on a lot of fine dining oh menu. yeah
1: no i and that's something i don't feel like i've had until recently like that yeah. that's a recent discovery for me one i hope like hits the food trend just because it would be super weird if it does is, would be like gefilte fish because it's yeah, like and, let's take something that's like jellied pickled fish and see yeah. what people do with it
0: and i mean i like
1: i actually like it i can't eat it all the time but i actually like it. Good.
0: Yeah. And there's, I have, you know, which is why I, I did my like, my thing of like, let's not food shame. <laughs> because like I was saying, a lot of times people that are like, all, uh, like, if you don't like it, if you think something is overrated, okay, Fine. don't eat it. You know what yeah. I mean? but i have very big things about food shaming because a lot of times this is stuff that are cultural dishes mm-hmm. and they get villainized either because they are foreign or because they're dope, they are deemed yeah. the, because they're deemed unhealthy right. and i'm like i'm sorry there are civilizations who have been surviving on these foods for millennia you can't mm-hmm. say that they're unhealthy you cannot tell me that beans tortillas and rice are unhealthy when literally a continent's worth of people have been surviving
1: right. on these.
0: Well, I've I've heard people
1: I've heard people do that about sushi, and that's like literally sushi is one of the healthiest things you can eat because it's it's just like you know. I mean, the thing is,
0: them. yeah. I mean, the thing again, it's all one of those things that it's like it's relative, like to who are you t- and to understand that like different peoples, like different civilizations, mm-hmm. have different guts and different gut biomes.
3: Right. And yeah.
0: so you know, no. Granted, there's stuff about eating responsibly, right? Like with fish, you got to deal with the whole mercury thing and all that stuff. But right, listen, just eat what you like. Try to mm-hmm. try to get some whole foods in there if you can, and if you can't,
1: just do the best you I can. I mean, all that said, I will never stop um, going <clears throat> about. Fruit, but that's just mostly because it annoys you. So
0: that's be- and also because you, <laughs> because you think that I'm gonna be like, why aren't you eating fruit? You need to eat fruit, and I don't give a fuck if you eat fruit or not.
1: <laughs> you would, you would. Well, I don't know if you'd be surprised, but how many people do do that to
0: me, though? I know, like, but that's that's part of my whole thing with this is like, don't yuck somebody's yum,
1: and don't like, yum somebody's yuck either. Don't be like, oh, the thing that you think is gross. Like, no, here's all the reasons why you're wrong. No, if I think it's gross, I think it's gross. I, yeah, just I'm not. Gonna to, like yell at you for you. listen
0: evening. keep your eyes on your own plate like <laughs> stop looking at stop caring about what other people are eating like right. there is some stuff that is like ethically murky sure you know like veal goose liver no. pate like there's absolutely stuff that is ethically murky and you can have an opinion about that you can also keep that opinion to your fucking self yeah. Oh, you know what
1: yeah. I mean? Not, not, okay. We need to, let, we need to end yeah. this. But I guys, just, like, guys, we're going to
0: end it here, but we're going to continue offline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I have Thank thoughts. you. I have thought. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so
0: much for listening. As always, rate, review, subscribe, share, leave us a review. We love hearing from you guys. Tell us some of your, like, you know, controversial food takes. I know one of our listeners will absolutely have some. Uh, and with that, stay weird, stay curious. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>